This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 66. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and all the audio podcast platforms out there in the marketplace. Uh, you can also uh, listen to our live streams every Tuesday. We do a live stream where we have a featured interview that is part of this podcast. We do those on Tuesday mornings, U.S. time, uh, or Tuesday afternoons in Europe and Africa, uh, Tuesday evening in uh, Asia-Pacific. Be, be sure to check out those live streams as well. So uh, today's show is a good one, as always. Or Of course, I'm biased. I'll be honest. I'm biased. I think the show is awesome, but uh, it, it, is a, it is a good show, in my opinion. We've got some really interesting, diverse topics. I think one thing we're doing a good job of in this in this podcast is getting broader and broader in our view of digital mm-hmm. transformation and just trying to really unpack all the possible nooks and crannies that we can. And today's a good example of that. We're going to have a number of hot topics that are super interesting. Um, We're going to talk about Amazon's new walkout tech stores, um, which, uh, Kyler, you've got more information for us on on that topic, as well as some of these other hot topics. But Amazon walkout tech stores is something we'll talk about. We're going to cover Silicon Valley and the remote culture shift um, that we've seen over the last couple of years since the pandemic. Uh, the National Hockey League Edge, the NHL Edge, um, is sort of an augmented and virtual reality world that they're developing and launching. So we'll talk a bit about that and perhaps what that means to augmented reality and virtual reality uh, mm-hmm. in general. And we're going to talk about the U.S. Air Force cybersecurity mascot. Um, that one is the one that I'm the most uncertain of in these other topics because that one, I didn't know there was such a thing as mascots for cybersecurity, but apparently there are. Mm-hmm. And uh, leave it to the United States government to yeah. uh, come up with that. I suppose. Weird about it, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're gonna get uh, we're gonna go Terminator on the audience here mm-hmm. uh, during the hot topics, and we're gonna talk about the threat of poisoning artificial intelligence. And it actually has nothing to do with the Terminator, but it kind of reminded me of the Terminator mm-hmm. as we were prepping for this because of the uh, the negative implications or the potential negative use of AI. Um, we're going to talk about that, which is a really will be an interesting topic. So those are the, some of the hot topics we'll cover in the first segment. Later in the show, we are going to have our first guest, who's Chad Baker, the CEO and founder of LAE Software. And he's going to be on the show talking about cybersecurity. We're going to unpack sort of an overview of what cybersecurity is, why it's important, what are the things we should think about. And then we're also going to talk with Chad about his top 10 list. He's compiled the top 10 list of the most annoying things uh, to know about cybersecurity. So there's super annoying things that you almost don't want to know, but you have to know. So it's it's sort of a double-edged sword. Um, really interesting conversation. So he has a he has an interesting way of how he's sort of broken down cybersecurity and talk through and talking through that top 10. So we'll have Chad Baker on later in the show to talk about that. And then last but not least, later in the show, our third segment, 
we will feature Christy Barber, who's a senior manager at Third Stage Consulting, and she's going to talk about uh, being a small business consultant in digital transformation. So this will be of interest if you're in the consulting field or interested in consulting, or if you hire consultants, it'll give you some perspective of some of the things to think about as you evaluate potential consultants and uh, understand some of their their strengths and weaknesses. We'll, we'll talk with Christy later in the show, but before we get to our guests, let's talk through some of these hot topics you have for us, Kyler. Yeah, so let's start with um, these new Amazon stores. So basically the Amazon brick and mortar overall strategy has been active for a few years now, but this is the first time we've seen this really high tech um, humanless, if you will, store. So it has one employee in a 61,000 square foot store um, which is a, a 32,000 front of the house store. So think about half of that space, more than half, is full of items and goods. This walkout technology basically is just that. You grab whatever item you'd like as a customer and you simply walk out with it and the technology then um, charges your Amazon account for it. Um, the reason that this high-tech store is so interesting, and I'll give you a little virtual tour, audio tour right here. Um, so they have self-serve Starbucks coffee um, and espresso bar. They have um, kombucha on tap, of course. And then they have an icy machine and the first self-serve Pinkberry frozen yogurt machine. They also have a made-to-order kitchen and sandwich menu of over 30 menu items. Um, that are everything from breakfast sandwiches to avocado toast, salads, wraps, whatever you can think of within a store with one employee. Wow. Um, so all of this is operated by either robotics or different distribution technical tactics that they utilize. Um, so this is kind of a huge shift in their overall brick and mortar strategy. Uh, they actually launched a huge technical savvy store um, instead of some of their other pop-up items or Amazon lockers or in-person type of things. Uh, so it's got people mixed reactions. Some people find it really creepy to go in a store with absolutely no humans. Um, and some people find it incredibly convenient and efficient to be able to go in and, you know, just walk out with whatever they need in a timely fashion. Uh, so I wanted to get your take on that, Eric, to see if one, you think it's creepy, and two, if you think that many other large brick-and-mortar retailers such as Target or Walmart might follow suit with these new um, technologies. Yeah, good question. I, I don't know um, if I, I don't know. I'm one, it, it is a little bit creepy. Um, I guess I'm, a, I'm not the best judge of character on this because I don't enjoy shopping to yeah. begin with. So if I'm going to go into a physical store and just pick stuff and walk out with it, I would just go to the website. I would just go to the Amazon website and get same day delivery or prime delivery the next day or whatever. Um, so, but, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm representative of the average consumer or not, um, but I do like the convenience of it. It's kind of nice to know you can just walk in, grab yourself and go and not have to wait in line. I mean, there, there's a convenience factor to that. And there's certainly certain products that people buy that they still feel more comfortable having that physical visual uh, mm -hmm. line of sight into whatever they're buying and being able to see it and touch it and feel it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you, there could be some merit to it. Um, whether or not it turns into a full on retail trend, I don't know. I, I guess I'm yeah. a little bit doubtful, but I, I wouldn't be surprised, I suppose. I, I feel like the the e-commerce model, I don't know. I just feel like it doesn't do enough to walk that fine line between full on bricks and mortar and e-commerce. 
how do you, I just have a, qu a question. I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but how does it, if, if you and I walked in side by side into the store and we both grabbed the same product, how does it like, how does it attach the product to, to you or I, do we scan it on our phone or does it, is it some sort of uh, uh, other technology that knows that I'm the one that grabbed this product mm -hmm. and not you versus the other people in the store? Yeah, I actually have no idea. I thought about that myself. Um, I assume there has to be some sort of attachment to the app or something like that um, to be able to, you know, you had there has to be some sort of data capture to identify the customer. Um, so I don't know, but it, you know, it's a really interesting concept to figure out how you would do that. I think as a as a parent that always forgets things at the store that needs them like immediately, uh, that would be excellent to be able to do. But I think one of the things that Amazon offers in the digital format is just the pricing, you know, being able to compare pricing that user generated content through reviews and things like that. So I would be curious to see how they integrate or if they do some of those really competitive advantages within the, you know, face-to-face -face, uh, experience. Yeah. And, you know, shrinkage and inventory loss is such a big deal in the retail space. And Amazon already runs a pretty thin margins as it is, you know, because they're making they're making it up on volume. So it makes you wonder, like, is that it, it just seems like there would be ways to work around the technology to steal, you know, for lack of a better word. Not not that you or I would want to steal, but theft is a big problem in, in bricks and mortar stores. So I, I just would be curious more than anything. What if you walk in without a phone, you know, and walk out with a product? How does it know or? Is, is that what that one employee is there to do to make sure that everyone's compliant or in some way? I have no idea, but uh, some unanswered questions, I suppose, there with the model. Yeah, definitely. And, and how do you pay for your avocado toast? I didn't even know. Is that like complimentary or <laughs> right. like what happens there? So, um, yeah, definitely is something mm -hmm. that will be um, interesting to follow to see if there's some sort of hybrid approach um, to being able to have that um overall technology interface or interaction within the store. We've seen a lot of that within drive-throughs and banking and those types of industries move towards um, less human contact, mostly because of the pandemic, labor shortages and, and that need for efficiency in producing their service or product. So it will be something that will be interesting to continue to follow. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're in the Seattle area and you go to the store, we'd love to hear from you about your experience. If you go um, and post on TikTok and, and tag us. We'd love to to see that and we'll, you know, do a little stitch with you. So yeah, um, I'd love to see that too. That'd be great. Yeah, we do. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, kind of transitions in, in work environments, uh, there was a new study that came out that looked specifically at Silicon Valley and their move from full remote and that shifting into a more hybrid or back to in-office um, opportunity. And a lot of their reasons for not going back in office fully is because of just the diversity and talent pools. Um, and that's been seen across this study. Uh, this specific uh, automation company in healthcare, it's called Olive. It's actually out of Columbus, Ohio. But they grew during the pandemic from, um, from about 200 employees to uh, just a little over 1,300 employees because of obviously we know the growth in healthcare technology during that time and the need for a lot of that support. And they, they said in this case study, there was no way they could have scaled without tapping into those, those national, more diverse talent pools. Um, so it's, it's interesting because you have to kind of 
look at the specific employee or the specific business or what makes sense for that that type of um, overall transition. Um, and what I wanted to ask you is kind of not totally related to this article, but a lot of a lot of this um, remote work has caused for an influx in cities like Austin or Boise in the United States here that have seen a complete kind of exodus from Silicon Valley and just completely blown up like their real estate market because people have been moving there. So I wonder what are some of the other like unknown risks of remote culture in that size of a business that you would consider um, when when looking at what that transition actually means holistically? Yeah, well, in addition to the real estate displacement and sort of uh, throwing off any you know, trends in the in the marketplace, um, there's also the cybersecurity piece of that, which we're going to talk about Absolutely. later with, with Chad Baker as well. Um, so stay tuned for that. He, he's a better, more credible source mm -hmm. of cybersecurity stuff, but you can talk to that specific question of how remote workforces affect cybersecurity and what some of the things are to think about in those environments. Um, but beyond that, I think, you know, the other thing that's a, it's a bit harder to quantify, you know, cybersecurity, mm -hmm. it's pretty obvious if you have a breach or not, it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it may be too late, but you can, you can pinpoint it. Same with the real estate impact. You can pinpoint the effect on housing prices and, and city growth and all that good stuff. But the one that's harder to maintain, and this is something that we actually have struggled with the third stage or, you know, sort of trying mm -hmm. to do our best to balance and make sure we, we have the right balance is, you know, maintaining that culture when you do have a hybrid work environment. We've always had a hybrid work environment even before COVID, but it's, I'd say more so now, partly because of COVID, but also partly because we've grown so much and we've just hired a lot of people mm -hmm. that aren't based in one of our for international hubs, um, or they're not in those exact cities. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think maintaining and preserving a culture and creating that stickiness and that positive employee experience can be more challenging mm -hmm. in remote or hybrid environments. So I'd, I'd say those are the couple of things that come to mind. Yeah, definitely. This study stated a few quotes from chief resourcing officers or head of HR, those types of, of positions, executives. And they talked a lot about how their their metrics have only grown um, since remote work. And, and part of me was like, I wonder what metrics they're measuring. Not that they're wrong in right. any way, shape or form, but it seems like very hard to measure what that looks like. Obviously, there's hard metrics like revenue, which can you know be impacted by a multitude of different things just besides employee experience. But, um, you know, I, I just wonder kind of what that measurement or what those metrics look like, mostly for our audience members, like what would be a metric of success that comes to mind when it comes to measuring the transformation between all in office and remote work and a company that size? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly you have employee sentiment that you can you can mm -hmm. measure as far as just employee satisfaction and um, there's been studies I've read that'll quantify, you know, what percentage of employees are looking elsewhere or likely to leave their company or want to leave the current company they're at. So that, that those sort of measures of employee sentiment, um, are one thing and, and also employee satisfaction in general, you know, how happy are your employees in their current roles? That's another measure you can look at. Um, and then, you know, the, probably the easiest one, which is more of a lagging indicator, which maybe too late for you to, yeah. to actively influence it is, is just that your attrition, you know, what yeah. percentage of your staff is leaving each year, or each quarter or whatever. Um, all those, all those metrics are examples of indicators of 
how healthy your culture is and your, your, your overall human capital management. Yeah, I, I thought it was so um, interesting. You know, I love buzzwords. It's just like a huge passion in my life. <laughs> right, me too. Um, it, but they, they talked about the draining of that protective moat around Silicon Valley. And I'm like, but where did it drain? And maybe that's just my cynical Denver native here that right. <laughs> is just, uh, has seen so much change in our community because of that. Um, but it just looked, it, it was so funny. I'm like, well, the water has to go somewhere. <laughs> Sounds like it's going to Austin from what you're saying. For a long yeah, time, it wasn't. Yeah, Boise, Denver, you know, all over really, you know, because if you think about it and you're in Silicon Valley and you're a software engineer and you make X amount of money uh, and can buy, you know, a, a huge inflated already real estate market and there's a different cost of living somewhere else, you know, that, that might make sense for you. It depends on you kind of those family dynamics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. But my next topic here is an, another cool one. I think we've been seeing this trend of tech in sports, um, mm -hmm. and specifically in professional sports that we might not have seen um, post-pandemic, but just the emergence of these really cool technologies. I know we talked about uh, the technology that is for signaling in our National Baseball League here in the U.S. Um, that goes into Canada as well. Uh, but this NHL Edge is actually um, a digital technology that, features virtual reality and augmented reality when it comes to actually consuming games. Um, mm -hmm. So basically these robot like players, you can see them move across the ice. You can look at puck trajectory and then going into putting on the, the augmented reality glasses at the game or at home, you can see the actual production from all different levels. So say you were not sitting on behind the goal, you could actually see what's going on as the, the goal, um, the puck enters the goal, um, that type of thing. And then it also allows people to create avatars out of the actual um, players, uh, learn more about their statistics, their background, interact with them, even though it's not really them, right? I think it's important that we just baseline reality a little bit and these <laughs> right. types of things. Um, but putting on those goggles, you know, you can consume the game and interact with the players from wherever you want. And really what the goal with this new technology is to attract a, a younger consumer base for the NHL and, and creating that overall brand affinity with kind of that Gen Z marketplace. Um, and then of course they had to talk about um, the metaverse opportunities of, you know, augmented reality and being able to go to lunch with, you know, whomever um, you want to go to lunch with from the Bruins or the Canadians or whatever that looks like. So. And you have a conversation with that person or how, how does that work? Yes. Yeah. So you could have a conversation with them. Um, obviously it's their the NHL's kind of PR team, communication team, marketing team, whatever, right, has canned some responses, what that looks like. But it does have that AI involved in that, as a lot of augmented reality does, so that you're actually able to carry on a conversation. It may not make a ton of sense at first, or you may be able to tell what that looks like, but it will have things like their accents, right, um, and things that actually go with their overall human um appearance so kind of cool that is kind of cool i i'd be curious just to see what that's all about or what it's like i i like the part you were talking about being almost like you could see it from being yeah. right behind the net and or being uh 
uh, ringside and being super close and seeing the action. Are, th are these real games you would watch or is it like yeah. simulating? No, games? no, it's real games and you that's can cool. do it in real time too. And that's one of the data points that they get is actually fans in the stands utilizing these different applications on their phones and things like that. Um, you can actually, which I kept digging through this information because I'm like, how do they do that? Because they can measure speed that the players are going at, puck trajectory, those types of things. So I'm like, are there sensors on the ice? Are there sensors on their uniforms? And I didn't quite get into that. So if you are an, an expert in that field, I'd love to know. Um, my brain was just going down the rabbit hole of like, how do they actually create those data points um, through that? But, you know, sports tech has really come a long way in the last couple of years. And it, it seems it's going more in the customer space now, as opposed to the actual player performance space, which we know it's been in for quite a while. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. I know. I know. They've also um, utilized AWS and different cloud hosting services for alternate feeds. Um, so being able to watch the game in, in different areas um, and with different streams. So basically say you and I were watching um, the devil's game and be able to see each other and we'd also be able to see the stream. So it's kind of like a virtual experience of being able to share that with your network. So interesting. That's super cool. I'll be curious to see yeah. if that catches on and if that becomes a, a, an increasingly important part of the viewing, the sports viewing experience, whether it's NHL or mm -hmm. soccer or football, whatever, you know, whatever the sport may be. Yeah. And that's always the hardest part about being kind of a cord cutter, right? Is that you don't have access to as much sports broadcasting traditionally mm -hmm. as you would. Um, so it's, it's a, a huge kind of question mark in that telecommunication field, just because those networks pay so much money for those contracts. And obviously, so they're super protective of that. Um, yeah. And it's how a lot of, you know, the, the satellite cable companies make a lot of money off of those packages, too. So it'll be interesting to see because I feel like that bubble has to burst at some point. It's not going in the consumer behavior tra trajectory that is um, in satellite TV, cable TV, those types of things. It's moving more towards that streaming service as a customer demand base. So mm -hmm. definitely an interesting piece. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and, and fun, fun, quick stories. Um, I started my career in event administration, and my first big event was um, in the East Coast here in the United States. And there was this huge knockdown drag out fight about who was a bigger Bruins fan. It wasn't that they were fighting against like different teams. It was who was the bigger Bruins fan. So wow. I got, you know, a big lens into New England sports during yeah. that time in my new career but <laughs> yeah. i'll be curious to see how that dynamic translates into augmented reality as well i completely agree um, you, advice? you know i, I don't know, yeah, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know maybe you can't i bet you could i mean that's a part of the overall sport that's a part of the culture um so definitely very interesting um to see that transition so moving into more of the cybersecurity space to kind of cue up our conversation um as well is the Air Force, right? The cybersecurity mascot. So think of like a caped robot with a shield on it and oh. a lightning bolt and a helmet is really what it is. And basically it's the new brand of Air Force cybersecurity. They're trying to legitimize their, you know, new infrastructure of cybersecurity and kind of buck that overall perception that government systems are old and outdated. Uh, so they use it as an opportunity for people to feel safe with this robot 
I think it looks more like a knight, if you ask me, but, um, you know, I didn't design it. So, but basically what they're doing now is a user generated content campaign where you can name their cybersecurity robot. Uh, so you can go through this process of actually uh, going to visit their Twitter and they give you an opportunity to submit an application online to name um, this robot. Uh, and so if you'd like to, you can go and name him like Psy Cybersecurity Robot or something like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so he he that's an opportunity um, for you to create awareness around cybersecurity through their marketing materials campaigns and um, overall brand awareness. So a little fun tidbit there about the U.S. Air Force. I don't know if I would I don't know if I would create a mascot for something like that. It seems like you wouldn't want to draw attention to it, especially outside the organization. It's um, weird to me that they chose like cybersecurity um, in that area. Um I don't know as a marketing professional, I was actually having a, a conversation of with one of my colleagues the other day in the industry about brand awareness. And I was trying to explain that's not always a positive thing, depending on what you're looking right, at. So it depends on what the awareness is. Is it positive or is the association more like, I'm not sure I get that one. So I think it's just, again, the Air Force trying to be more approachable with all of the you know digital transformation failures they've gone through um in the past couple of years um but we'll see how that goes to me it's not a, a huge impactful landing but i could be wrong been wrong before we'll be wrong again i'm sure yeah so. yeah we'll see hopefully it doesn't invite more hackers or cybersecurity breachers to use you know use that as an excuse to target the u.s military you know, just to yeah but, yeah do you remember you well i I, some people are too young for, do you remember Clippy in Microsoft? Yeah. The, that would give you all clip. the, yeah, the, like, yeah. you could call it like the beginning of AI, that virtual assistant type of thing. Um, but really it kind of reminds me. What? It was really annoying AI, though. Oh, I mean, it like, absolutely <laughs> was. You could not get rid of Clippy. He was no. the ultimate virtual stalker. And, he didn't and, last very long, I don't think. No, which is good for, you know, the consumer. But it, it kind of <laughs> reminds me of that, of like, little too much of a reach like i see where you're going but you went too far so yeah yeah that's a good analogy or a good example of comparison <laughs> yeah so um this my last cybersecurity hot topic today is about data poisoning um and kind of the manipulation of information that's utilized to train certain machines that have become untraceable so a lot of uh the examples in here talk about kind of what it it means for computers to be able to identify things and how you can actually utilize data to confuse that AI system. Mm -hmm. So if you are labeling a species correctly, you should know that one, it's a dog, right? And then be able to tell the dog's breed, the dog's size, those types of different data points. But if you are poisoning that data, all of a sudden you convince the dog that it's actually a cat and now it should give you medicine for a cat that could be harmful to a dog, that wow. type of um, just basic an analogy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just an, another layer of cybersecurity. And I wish I would have remembered to ask Chad about data poisoning because now I'm going to use that you know term in everything I say um, and really how much of a threat that actually is um, to outside organizations. Yeah, and it's uh, something that I do talk to Chad about later in our next segment is 
the risk of having data that's touching other systems because oftentimes it's mm -hmm. the other systems that integrate to other systems you're just exposing or creating different vulnerabilities and so ai by definition is oftentimes pulling data from multiple sources so there's a lot i guess there's more opportunity for you to poison the data especially if you're if it's unstructured data or, or data that's not locked down um, and it's pulling from public data sources for example or um, you know things that are not easily lockdown, so to speak. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to get into that conversation. I will say that I was only like a, you know, one to 10. I was only like a three level scared in this cybersecurity conversation. And usually I'm, you know, in the seven to eight area when we talk about cybersecurity. Um, so definitely such a great job by Chad. I highly recommend it, listening to it, especially and sharing it with your colleagues, especially if you're not 100% sure what cybersecurity is, um, this top 10 list is really, really helpful to be able to understand. Yeah, yeah, it'd be super interesting. So let's, uh, we're gonna bring Chad on the show and he'll go through his top 10 list of the most annoying cybersecurity things that you should be aware of. But it, before he gets to that though, I'm gonna ask him questions about just general cybersecurity mm -hmm. stuff, what it is, why it's important, how it's changing, who owns cybersecurity, stuff like that, just to set the context and then we'll get into the top 10 list. But before we do that, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 66. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Tyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as Amazon, 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 Spotify, Google, and all the other uh, podcast platforms out there. I'm excited for our next guest. He's someone who's been on our show. It's been a few months now. Uh, he was on several months ago. I, I guess it was probably third quarter or so of, of 2021. Um, he was back in one of our earlier episodes, but he's back today to talk about cybersecurity. And this is a super interesting topic. And like you, Kyler, I was probably a three or four in terms of my fear of cybersecurity, maybe a five, but now it's escalated after talking to Chad in preparation for, for this discussion. Um, but let's, let's uh, bring Chad onto the show and we're going to talk about an overview of cybersecurity to start. And then we're going to get into his top 10 list of the most annoying but critical things to know 
about cybersecurity. So with all that being said, Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. So maybe just to get started, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background as well as uh, LAE, if you don't mind. Yeah, so I spent about a little over 20 years working in corporate IT departments at uh, a few large companies. So a big healthcare company, a big financial services company, mainly on the the infrastructure side, uh, with which had some security components as well. Um, and while doing that, one of the things that I discovered was um, in order to get projects done, uh, the only way I was finding to do that was to write my own software to manage our systems. So writing the software became the software company. And um, so after working in corporate IT for a long time, switched to doing just software and the, the, the best way to describe our software company is by the name. So the name is LAE software, which stands for least administrative effort. So really what that is, is it's software designed by infrastructure and security professionals uh, for infra for infrastructure and security people. Um, so we're not trying to make pretty graphs and that type of thing. We're trying to make it as easy as possible for people to implement and solve problems. Yeah, it's a good uh, sort of a mission statement built into your built into your name, which is a, a good idea. Um, it's pretty cool. So um, I guess just to start, I mean, I know you, you mentioned that part of your background is obviously in uh, the world of cybersecurity. And I'll admit I'm not a cybersecurity person. So a lot of these questions are may are intended for people like me that don't know a ton about cybersecurity or aren't experts in this area. But before we get to your top 10 list, um, maybe just to start and sort of set the context and set the stage for what we're going to talk about, what maybe tell us a little bit about just what is cybersecurity and why is it so important? Yeah, so uh, cybersecurity is a function of an information technology department, typically. Um, and they are there to protect all of the company's information assets. And um, so cybersecurity actually evolved from people attacking information assets, kind of similar to like um, the best analogy I think of is like uh, medieval castles. Um, so at first they didn't really need castles and then you had people start invading like the Vikings. So they started building castles to help protect people. So they would create like the, the mot, which is they build an artificial hill to get on top of the hill to shoot arrows and rocks down on the attackers. And then it kind of evolved from there to a um, high walls. Um, so cybersecurity is kind of the, the same the same thing as it has evolved from the attackers. Um, and I actually saw it evolve because working in infrastructure with uh, security people, uh, the originally there was not security departments. It kind of evolved mostly from the the networking groups because that was the the first line of defense was the the network perimeter. Right, that's a it's a great analogy with with the castles. I never I, I never made that uh, connection before, but that's a, a good way to visualize it. So it's sort of like Game of Thrones is what you're saying. The whole right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just when you think you have a great defense, then somebody finds a way to get some dragons and attack you from the sky. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's super dramatic and that's sort of thing. <laughs> hopefully not quite as gory and bloody, but um, still important. Um, so what are the, what are the different uh, components of cybersecurity? I mean, what, what are the different dimensions of it or sort of, you know, what are the, how do you, what are the areas you focus on within cybersecurity typically? 
Yeah, so when you're talking to um, uh, CISOs of the Chief Information Security Officer or people within security, they'll tell you there's there's four major components of security. Um, the first one, so they use the, um, I, I guess it would be an initialism, they use CIAA. So the C part is the confidentiality. So what that means is that they're trying to make sure that only the authorized people have access to the information that they need access to. The I part is that they're trying to keep the data trusted. So they're trying to stop people from tampering. So the the best way I like to describe that is to use the old uh, Superman 3 uh, premise or the office space where you have somebody who basically got into the information systems, changed some of the code, and was able to take pennies off of every transaction and add it to their own yeah. bank account. So yeah, that's kind of the, the integrity side. And then the availability side, uh, which is the the third initial there is about keeping systems up. So networks, devices, and um, when you're talking about attackers, uh, you're trying to protect people from like ransomware attacks or uh, denial of service, where basically they're just hammering your systems, trying to bring them down. And then the the last one, which is um, newer within, I think, the last five years, is audit. So what they're doing there is um, that's becoming their the security group's responsibility to make sure that everybody is following all the uh, controls that they have recommended and put into place. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. All right. And then, um, how are the cyber? How are how are cybersecurity risks evolving here in the 2020s? It seems like it's there's a lot more talk about cybersecurity just in general, even in just mainstream media. It's not even just an IT thing anymore. It's it's becoming something that's I think more recognized by the world in general. But how is it evolving? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? What, what's changing about cybersecurity or the things we should be thinking about? Yeah, so I think as the the attackers get smarter, the defenses have to get smarter. So we're kind of evolving there to adding um, more things to try to prevent the attacks based upon the way people are attacking. Um, but there's two kind of two trends that I see within cybersecurity. Um, the first one is that the protectors aren't able to keep up. Hmm. So you're, you're you're starting to see where the the labor shortage and just the complexity and the amount of protections that need to be put in place are um, are making it hard for people to um, stop attacks as soon as they've kind of started. So once the attacker finds a new way to um, gain a, a foothold in a company or find a vulnerability, it's taking longer for people to react. And there's a larger number of things that people need to be responsible for. Hmm. Um, and then the, the second one is that because the protections have been getting stronger and stronger, what I'm seeing is that attackers are starting to exploit more insiders. So I think a good example of that one is one of the, the best authentication mechanisms out there is the, the multi-factor multi authentication, or you might hear it called two-factor authentication. Right. Um, so that's the, you go and log into a website, you have your password, which is something you know, and then once you log in, it will text you a code. So that's kind of something you have, which is your phone number and your phone. Um, so it texts you a code, and then you put that code in, and that's your second factor to gain access. Well, what they're doing is they're getting in to the people who work in the, the first level support and getting them to tell them the codes or they're, um, they're getting people on the phone and saying, I'm going to be sending you a code. Tell me what that code is. Um, so uh -huh. they, 
that's how they get that second factor and they're able to gain access. Interesting. So it's, it's unknowingly getting insiders to cooperate. So it's not like a nefarious, the insiders aren't necessarily doing it intentionally. It's that the outsiders are reaching into the insiders. I, I think it's a little of both. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And I, I guess I, I never tied it to labor shortages too. I never made that connection or, or connected the dots on some of the labor shortages that the IT world and other parts other industries are having right now is affecting um, cybersecurity. Um, so, so I guess what you're saying is you can't just set up, if you're a, an organization, whether you're in an IT department or whatever, um, you can't just set up, it's not a one-time thing to set up cybersecurity and say, these are our protocols. This is how we're going to tighten things up. It's, it's kind of like you have to continuously improve that and keep up with the way cybersecurity is evolving. Yeah. You have to kind of continually look at what you're doing, um, and make adjustments where needed. You have to continually audit that to make sure you're doing what you're saying you're doing. Um, and kind of just like, um, just like the medieval castles, um, you have to change what you're doing based upon your business. So some businesses have more valuable information and they have to have different security controls based upon their business. So, um, it's a, in there, obviously there's a cost associated with that as well. So it's, it's very complex, I guess, is what I was getting to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it, which is why you have CISOs and other um, specialized roles like that. They're focused on security and cybersecurity. Um, how has the pandemic and hybrid work models impacted cybersecurity? So with, you know, more people being uh, dispersed in an organization, even if it's just back office uh, people that are uh, working from home or working part-time from home. How has that affected cybersecurity here in the 2020s? Yeah, I think the trends were already starting to to change. So the um, security used to be a lot about protecting the perimeter. So building up those big castle walls and um, protecting all of your assets together um, in one spot. And people were um, based upon, I think, uh, labor shortages and other things, um, a lot of uh, people's systems and applications were moving to more of a less in the castle and more wherever you want it to be. And each kind of each person, each process, each computer is kind of becoming its own castle. So what you're doing is you're protecting each one. So that was the trend already. And then um, with the, the pandemic and the hybrid work models, it kind of accelerated it. Because mm. I, I, From what I saw, companies that I've talked to is they were kind of already had a work from home uh, model. And then um, the pandemic hit. They're like, well, we've got this model that 15% of the company's using. Now 100% is going to be using. Um, so they had to scramble to get uh, hardware to meet that model, like whether that was laptops or um, VPN devices, um, depending on what the company was using, but it was just kind of a, well, now we're going. <laughs> right. Yeah. Pretty, pretty abrupt shift from 15% to whatever the percentage was during the pandemic. And now it might be leveling off a little bit or dropping back to the way it was, but still exposure there for sure. It sounds like. Yes. Um, who is, uh, who's typically responsible for cybersecurity? I know you mentioned this uh, CISO. Uh, is that typically who's responsible or what have you seen in most organizations? Yes. Um, most organizations, um, have somebody who has the, um, uh, the CISO role, which is the CISO, which again is the chief information security officer. Um, so they are responsible for all of the looking at the business, 
looking at what controls they need to put in place to help protect the information assets and then implementing and then also auditing um, how they're implementing those controls. Um, and again, that kind, that kind of evolved from um, uh, infrastructure networking groups. So you'll see a lot of people that are in those roles that have been in um, basically in infrastructure and IT security for a long time. They have a lot of uh, networking skills. Gotcha. Okay. All right. We're here with Chad Baker talking about cybersecurity. We're going to take a quick break and we'll continue the conversation when we come back. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 66. We're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about cybersecurity. So here's a, a question that um, came from our, our audience from uh, Yogeshwar on YouTube. Um, he asked, do ERP offerings from industry stalwart two need another layer of security? What do you think about this? So in other words, if I'm, if I'm deploying or if I'm part of an organization that has deployed an ERP system or financial system, whatever, whatever enterprise technologies, is that enough to cover some of these cybersecurity risks that you're talking about? Or is there need to be another layer within that? Uh, I think the big things there is, um, and from, from what I'm understanding is that's kind of more the outsourced ERP solutions. Um, so there you're kind of trusting that company to put in the security controls to make sure your information is protected. So um, some of the things that you're, you're expecting them to do is to make sure that all of your data is encrypted mm -hmm. um, via in transit. So when you're accessing the data or at rest. So when that data is just sitting on the, the storage systems or in a database. Uh, so I think that um, you're paying for that service. So that's something you're expecting them to do. But I think it's a good idea to um, at least check with them on exactly what they're doing and then also uh, verify it. So lots of those people have external audits that come in and we'll do an audit of all their security controls and then they might have that information available to you so you can see how they did within the audit. Gotcha. Okay. Now, um, when you're evaluating or thinking about deploying technology uh, off the shelf, commercial software, uh, enterprise software, is there, um, you know, are there certain things you should look for or certain criteria you, you should ask for when you're, you know, evaluating the, the security aspects of, of software? Yeah, so there's um, so lots of times the those companies will say they're certified. Um, so like for data centers, there's SOC compliance, um, and then they're, they're, I would look for what are they compliant in, 
And then um, from that, you can see a lot of what their controls are. So you can see, okay, are they encrypting data at rest? Are they encrypting data in transit? Which pretty much everybody um, either is or should be. Um, then you can look at, are they using two-factor authentication? All of those types of things. Gotcha. Okay. Um, here's another interesting question. This one from um, LinkedIn. I'm trying to show it and it's not. There it is. Um, what, this is from Kyler on LinkedIn, and she asked, what is the landscape of cybersecurity in emerging markets where corruption or connectivity can be a challenge? So uh, this is a really good question because, you know, everything we've talked about kind of points to potential uh, nefarious actors and things like that. And the question then is, it, is it worse where there's corruption in, in certain countries or parts of the world? And then also where connectivity is a challenge. Does that add to the cybersecurity risks. So what are your, what are your, some of your thoughts there? Yeah. So for the, the, the especially the corruption side of it, absolutely. Um, so there's, depending on where you're at, you know, governments might institute a law that says they can look at all of your data. So they're going to be decrypting all of your network communications, looking at what's happening and then kind of re-encrypting and sending it on its way. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's kind of always a, a risk there. Um, and then uh, the connectivity problems is absolutely a risk to the availability side. So if you have um, either people doing work for you in those markets or you are um, housing systems there, if you have inconsistent network connections, then you're going to have your systems down possibly. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so I guess to, to shift gears then, um, you had prepared in, in advance <laughs> of this uh, – this discussion here today, uh, the top 10 most annoying things about cybersecurity. And, uh, you know, I had a chance to look at, at your notes here before you get to it. And, and these are indeed annoying things, but they're absolute reality, right? It, it's sort of like it's it's annoying stuff that you can't really change about cybersecurity or, or the threat of cybersecurity risk, but there's things you can do to to, to overcome them. So so uh, I guess any other context or background on, on this, how you came up with this top 10 list or any, any other context setting it, thought there <laughs> yeah it was kind of just kind of a a brain dump of the the things that have kind of bugged me for a long time about uh you know cybersecurity, and, and some of the things are like you said they're not necessarily things that are easily changed and for um so some people from a perception perspective might look at uh some of these things just like and you're like oh like why are you saying that you're making you're saying you know like security can be bad it's like no i think it's better to recognize that this is a problem, people are annoyed by it. And what are some of the things you can do to um, make it to where it's more palatable, to where they can they can actually do the things you need them to do to be more secure? Right, right. So what's uh, what's number ten on your list? If we sort of dive in here and, and get to the top ten, what's number ten? Yeah. So doing the countdown, um, the one that's kind of inherent in a lot of the uh, cybersecurity controls is that uh, easy and secure are often in conflict. Um, so if you think about the, you know, like protecting the confidentiality, like only the right people have access, um, it'd be a whole lot easier if I needed to get to anything I needed to get to, I could, but that's not very secure. So like having to ask, so, um, uh, having to put in say a ticket to get access to an application or access to a file folder, um, all of those things make it harder on people. Um, to get to what they need to right away, one thing, and then also um, it adds some inefficiency to the business because you've got some kind of back and forth there, some kind of duration time. 
Um, and kind of a good example of that too is um, I've heard this from a few people that they be um, some business travelers who take their laptops with them. They might go to a hotel and they have a big report that they have to put together and then they want to print it out and then they go to print it out at midnight and they can't add a printer to their computer because they don't have the rights to do it. Mm. That's kind of just, just an example of you kind of have to, they like it's more secure to make sure that people only have access to the printers that are the printers in their office. But in that scenario, it's, it's kind of really annoying. Mm. Um, another one is the, what I was just talking about with two factor authentication is that um, when you log into an application um, and you get that code texted back to you. I mean, there, there's some time spent there going to the phone. You have to have your phone with you, those types of things. Um, and then if you enter it wrong, you got to resend it. Um, there, so those controls can be a little bit annoying. Um, and um, they, they're getting better. Like um, some of the multi-factor authentication are um, changing to where you can use like key fobs. So you've got like a proximity device on your your keychain and that acts as your second factor and you can have a device on your computer that recognizes that and says oh this is chad he's in front of his computer all i need is this password and now we got two factor um so yeah that's the the easy and secure one yeah and it's you know it strikes me as you're giving these examples that a lot of times companies when they go through some sort of digital transformation they're putting in new technology and and as part of that deployment of new technology oftentimes they're rethinking their security profiles and how you can really tighten up security. And, you know, a lot of times companies that have the same system or systems in place for 10, 20, 30 years, the, you get a little bit lax in terms of security permissions and stuff like that. And back to your earlier point about audits, a lot of organizations don't go back and audit that stuff, but then you go to deploy new technology decades later and all of a sudden you realize, wow, I could really tighten up security, but it almost creates, it seems like that could create a shock to the system in some ways from a people expectation and a human perspective because they're used to doing whatever they want. And all of a sudden you've locked down security. And if you haven't explained to them why and all that stuff, that can be pretty stressful. Have you, have you seen that dynamic before? Yeah, the, I, I think absolutely the explaining why is always good. Um, but you know, one of the major problems out there is people get too much information. So lots of times people don't read the emails, right? Um, like does it, the, uh, um, RTFM, which is read the fun email. (laughs) The forwards? Is that the same as the forwards, like the jokes and stuff that you forward, or is it? Right. (laughs) So getting people to like see the why about why you're putting in a security control is a little bit harder, but I think it's better to um, start with those security controls in place because, like you said, people get used to it. So if you're if you're logging into an application, it's always just been the password. All of a sudden, somebody comes in and says, "Well, now you've got to have a." Um, you got to have a device on your keychain, and then you've also got to have a phone with the code texted to you. Um, adding that later is going to be a lot harder for people because they're going to be like, "Well, I've been doing it this way for so long. Why is this? Why is this changing?" Right, right. So, what about number nine? What's what's number nine on your countdown here? Yeah, so number nine is you have to trust somebody. Um, so, kind of using the the large ERP uh, companies that are basically managing that application for you, you're trusting them to um, protect your assets and keep your application available for when you need it. Um, and lots of times people have moments of weakness. So the, the you, I think a lot of people have fallen for the, they get an email, not sure what it is, click the, click the link without thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, 
also the the insiders are getting compromised so um like i was talking about you know like you can be the insider yourself if somebody gets on the phone and you kind of kind of trust them um and they trick you into giving out your second factor so they can gain access to a system or um also like the people who might be um uh, might be an insider so like a, a help desk person um might be uh an attacker might get them to like give them access to a system or something like that um so it's it's hard when you but in order for a business to operate, you have to trust somebody. Um, and that's why it's, it's annoying. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting one. Cause uh, you know, that trust is where, you know, that, that trust getting violated is where it seems like a lot of cybersecurity issues start, or it seems like that, a pretty big vulnerability, just being human. You know, I think that that seems like that's less reliable or, or a more um, volatile defense than some of the technical things you can put in place. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the, the human side of it, it can either be like an intentional problem or it can be just a being human, making a mistake problem too. Right. So this is sort of a related question that we got, um, you know, as it relates to, you know, having to trust someone um, in, and how that affects cybersecurity. But one of the questions here is um, for those cybersecurity resistors like Kyler on LinkedIn, <laughs> um, who is a self-admitted cybersecurity resistor. How can organizations effectively communicate the need or risk for these important processes to flip negative perceptions? So as you talk about, you know, back to your first point or the number 10 thing on your list, the easy and secure being in conflict. Right. How do you reconcile that with people that might not like the fact that things are no longer easy the way they might have wanted in the past? Yeah. So what, what always helped me to understand like why a business is doing something is to um, understand the impact. Like, um, so yeah, it's a pain that I've got to put in all these different factors of authentication. It's a pain that I can't have access to my printer. Um, but what would happen if somebody didn't, I guess is kind of one of the things that um, would be helpful to know. Um, and for a lot of people, it's hard to quantify it. Um, the there's some research groups that try to come up with um uh, some numbers right because everything i think everything in business can be boiled down to a dollar figure it's kind of the language of business um so tying it to like an impact per like one of the ones that a lot of people use is the impact per record and they break it down by industry so like if you were to lose um, one, one email or one document that had, uh, somebody's healthcare information in it, what really is the cost of that to the business from a, they got to pay out in a lawsuit. Um, they have to pay for protection for the people. Like what is that number? And I think healthcare was like around $300 per record. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a, a site that has kind of the, all the different industries and what their cost per record is. So if you take that number, and then you multiply it by um, the number of records that could be in your system. So if you think about like a, a healthcare company, um, one person's email, if they're emailing around medical records, which hopefully they're keeping that secure in the application, but if they're emailing around medical records, so you figure a lot of people probably have at least 30,000 emails in there of mm -hmm. which how many of those are medical record, medical records, call it maybe 5,000. So times that per, by the per record cost, and that kind of gives you an idea of what an impact would be just for accessing the, the email system. Wow. 
yeah, that's a good way to sort of quantify it. And maybe that's the, the key here is, is quantifying some of the, the risks and the costs of, of cybersecurity breaches. Um, so what's number eight on your list, continuing with the countdown here? Um, and it's one that I think you kind of mentioned too, is that uh, security is still thought of as a department. So a lot of people will be like, ah, security won't let me access my printer. Ah, security won't let me do this, right? Um, right. So people still think of it as a department as kind of as opposed to it's a part of everything. Um, I think as you, uh, I, I've worked with some great uh, security professionals who um, they tried to, to get that understood, at least within, uh, starting with the IT department. So with the developers understanding that, um, a little bit more about why you need information security. What are some controls they can do to help uh, make their applications more secure on the development side? Um, so I think getting everybody to understand that it's kind of owned by everybody instead of it's owned by one department um, makes it to where people can't just push off that responsibility and say, oh, that's the security department's problem. So it's, it's sort of like it's it's part of everyone's job to you know ensure that they're keeping, you know, contributing to the security of the company's assets right. and, and like as people do that it helps them think a little bit more too so um when you get a call from somebody if you're thinking hey i gotta i gotta protect my information assets here somebody just called me and they're saying i need to they i need to give them the code i just received on my phone i probably shouldn't believe that <laughs> right yeah and just being aware that those people are out there and that's a risk and um mm -hmm. for you know that can be it seems like that can be some one of the hardest things is just to help people understand the risks and the um, things to watch for rather than waiting until they make a mistake and then realize. And, yeah. And I, I think when you kind of, when people take responsibility, it also changes their behavior mm. um, because they, it's not, they, they think a little bit more about, Hey, it's part of my responsibility is to make sure that I am protecting the assets as well. So I'm not going to do things that could possibly cause a problem, like giving somebody access to my computer, that type of thing. Right. Yep. All right. What about number seven? This is this is a good one. What <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to. Yeah. So this was uh, this one was one of my um, uh, one of my most annoying things from the infrastructure side as well is that uh, there's a lot of applications that are really great applications for a business and they're still heavily used, but they are extremely old. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, if you think about the the security controls are evolving because of the attackers. If something is really old, those security controls are very old as well. Um, so those are the um, those are your weakest links. So those are kind of the 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 slow slow buffalo in the herd kind of thing. Um, and from an organization perspective, you're really only as strong as your weakest app. Um, so having a lot of weak apps out there um, makes it uh, makes it hard to secure those. Um, and from what I've seen is that lots of times those old systems still exist because there is a high cost to the business to update those applications, which at the same time you're updating the security controls. Um, and then it, it, so there's a high cost. It also takes a lot of time. So what I've seen is that they'll kind of ask the security group or the infrastructure group to come in and put in some some other mitigations to try to help protect these applications, um, which makes it a lot harder to access for people as well. Yeah. So, you know, back to that earlier question uh, from YouTube that someone asked about, um, you know, whether or not enterprise technology providers provide the cybersecurity that's needed. 
even if you assume that they do, which I, I think your answer basically said, no, you shouldn't assume that, but you know, that you want to understand what their security uh, protocols are and where the risks are and what you might need to do sh to shore up any risks. But even if they did have, you know, everything locked down and perfectly secure from their applications, they could be, you could be integrating that same system to some other older or some legacy third-party system that isn't secure. And suddenly you have that vulnerability, even though the main core ERP system or core enterprise technologies might be locked down. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah. And one of the nice things about the um, uh, outsourcing to like a large ERP uh, solution provider is that they have that focus on just that application. So mm -hmm. that focus you would hope, you know, you don't want to verify, but uh, you would hope that they, um, because they're focusing on it, they are um, putting in the right security controls and um, keeping their systems up to date. Um, and that's kind of what you're paying for as part of the service. Right. All right. We're here with Chad Baker talking about cybersecurity. We're going to take a quick break and we'll continue the conversation when we come back. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 66. We're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about cybersecurity. And now kind of flipping it to uh, another, the other side. So we talk about older, outdated technologies, but here's a question from Parisa on LinkedIn, which is sort of looking at the, the flip side of that, is what about cybersecurities for modern, more modern technologies like AI or robotics? So we talked about like the older legacy systems that could provide particular risk from a cybersecurity perspective, but is there anything new or different to think about as it relates to AI or robotics, or is it all sort of a, a general approach that you take to address cybersecurity? Yeah, I think that the AI one is more still the general approach. Um, the big thing there is that when you're thinking about AI, the in order for the um, machine learning algorithms to gain some insight into the information you have, is you have to give the services access to a ton of information. Mm. So um, they're kind of becoming the, um, so the, the people that have access to that or the service accounts that have access to the data, you're giving them kind of keys to a lot of the doors within your business information. So um, I think you need to be a little more careful with um, watching how you're giving that access and what people have access to. Um, uh, so, so that's kind of on the AI side. On the robotic side, you know, one of the um, the concerns there is that, um, so like in computer information systems, um, if somebody gets access to data, 
yes, that can be harmful to somebody from a, um, an economic perspective, mostly. Um, when you're talking about robotics, if you're, if people are able to gain access to something, then now you're talking about, you know, kind of um, health and, and life type things, which I think you need to kind of increase the number of controls there. Um, so like when you're thinking about um, like autonomous driving cars, that type of thing, I think people have heard of people gaining access to the cars and being able to shut them off or um, turn off some of their safety systems. Um, I think that is um, that causes you to look at adding more controls to make sure that you're protected. Um, and then uh, obviously more on the auditing side as well. Right. Right. Okay. And then back to your countdown, what's, what do we have at number six? So uh, number six is that um, a, a lot of log events are missed. So um, when you, talking about like the auditing side of the security. Um, one of the things that's, that's um, you might've heard the term of a SOC, which is a security operations center. And really what that, that is, is um, you're trying to get all the data coming from your applications and your security systems all into one location where you can put some AI on that data. You can put some people's eyes on that data and try to determine where you have a problem. Um, and, um, while doing that, people are adding more and more and more information. The amount of people in the industry to be able to manage the systems is kind of going down, respectively, for the amount of uh, systems they have. So there's um, a lot of events that are missed. Um, and then kind of added to that is you also have the high cost of the storage, the transmission, and the processing of um, when you've really turned up that logging. So if you're, if you're trying to capture everything and look at everything, it's going to be a high cost. So people can't do that um, because it's kind of the, the, the cost benefit equation changes a little bit. So what people do there is they trim down what their uh, trim down their scope so they can actually get, get um, something working at least. Right. Um, so there's things that are missed and then um, somebody might get a foothold in a network um, and then they can expand from there. But uh, yeah, so that's number six is that many logs events are missed. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, that's one I wouldn't have thought of uh, for sure. What about uh, number five? This is a good one. We sort of touched on this a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we touched on it. Yeah. yeah, this is a good one too. Um, so security is, um, is sometimes an afterthought. So um, as people are building out applications, um, the first thing they're thinking about is building the app. So getting it functional. Um, getting, you know, like looking at whether or not it's going to be beneficial to the business, um, making sure it's going to work. And, um, so they're, they don't want to slow that, that process down. So what a lot of people will do is they'll get that done first and then they'll come to the security department and say, Hey, I built this app. What do you think I need to do from a security perspective to make sure this is secure and security people will tell them, I really wish you would have talked to me. Like when you first started and we could have, uh, we could have got those things in place. Yes, it would make the process longer, but the application would be way more secure. Um, and it, it actually would be more efficient because you also get a huge amount of inefficiency when you build an application, bring the security department at the end. And then now they've got to kind of figure out ways to put in controls to, um, protect that application. And sometimes those controls, um, are going to make the application, it could make the application slower. Um, it could make it less accessible um, and it would be a lot more efficient if it was included within the application. 
Right. Yeah, I, I can think back to enterprise software deployments I was involved with 15, 20 years ago. And even back then, I remember security profiles were sort of like an, oh, yeah, we almost forgot. We need to create all these security profiles for all the people that are going to be touching the system. Um, and then and also test that, too. That's the other part of it. You know, when you're rolling out new technologies, you, you have to test that and make sure that you find that right balance between your number 10 thing, which is the, the ease of use and, and secure mm-hmm. transactions, you, you sort of have to balance that because when you go through testing, you might get a bunch of people saying, Hey, I need more access or this group needs more access because they, their jobs need to be easier. But then how do you sort of audit that or check that to make sure that you're deploying the right security profiles? So that seems like a, an ongoing battle that organizations have. Yeah. And there, there's another thing that kind of affects it too, is that um, because attackers are evolving and protections need to evolve, the systems change quite a bit. Mm. So the the systems that were in place to protect applications probably will change within a within a year or two. So when you're talking about on the development side as you're building an application, um, you've kind of got your set method of how you're going to build it based upon these are the security systems we have in place. Um, and then that changes um, either because the uh, security group finds something that's better from a protection perspective. Or one of the um, one of the other big trends in the security world is that the CISO, so the person kind of responsible for cybersecurity, they they don't last long at companies. Um, mm. Most of them are there for about two years, um, kind of just from what I've seen. And it's um, and it's mainly because of the the shortage. There's just not enough um, CISOs out there, really good CISOs. So what happens is if somebody's a good CISO, another company finds them <laughs> and right. then they, they offer, they offer them more money to come over to their company. And so the CISOs don't last long. So when a new CISO comes in, um, they'll come in and then they go to the things that they trust, which might be like a different, um, a different firewall, um, a different two factor authentication system. Um, so then those things are changing, which it's, it's harder to keep up as the, the change uh, cycle keeps happening. Right. Right. Okay. So what about number four on your top 10 list? Yeah. So number four is that uh, old exploits still work. Um, so th- this one's extremely frustrating because, you know, I, I, I live this one a little bit more. Um, so the, so an unpatched system, which would mean that there is a known code vulnerability um, would allow an attacker to gain access to a system. So a good example of that is, uh, was that last year maybe? Um, uh, Microsoft Exchange had a vulnerability which mm-hmm. attackers could exploit um, and then gain access to everybody's email. Um, and so if you were a, um, a customer of Microsoft's Exchange online, they recognized the vulnerability, patched all their servers pretty quickly um, but it took other companies longer to um, get that patch in place. Um, and so that's just kind of an example of a quick one. Vulnerability comes out and it still takes, it takes time in order for you to get that patch. But there's some companies that have left um, vulnerabilities out there for a long time because they haven't been, that's kind of a higher priority one. So people patch that a little bit faster, mm-hmm. but lower um, uh, priority vulnerabilities, um, you'll see that take, you know, quarters, sometimes years in order for people to get patched because um, patching's hard. Um, the hard thing about patching is it's a pretty automated process from the implementation side. So people push out the patch, patch is installed, reboots the system. 
Um, where the problem comes in is where um, you don't know what that effect that a patch is going to have on your application. So right. pat patches have brought applications down. Um, sometimes just rebooting the system and running into an authentication problem um, or uh, basically stopping functionality that used to work with an app because it was insecure is now is now blocked. So they have to figure out a code remedy to that. Um, so that risk of bringing down a system has made people, um, a lot of people are a little leery about patching. Um, so sometimes they patch only if they need to. So they're only really looking at the high priority patches um, and don't necessarily have the, um, the older patches on a fast enough cycle in order to protect basically. Mm. And then that also gets back to the old systems. Old yeah. systems, lots of times, the the company that built that app maybe is gone. So there's not anybody who's building patches for vulnerabilities as well. Right. Yeah. It seems like a lot of these are, are tied together or integrate with one another. A lot of these annoying things sort of feed off one another. Um, and speaking of that, what about number number three? Yeah. So uh, number three is uh, that security misconfiguration is getting worse. Um, so... I think the, the complexity, the labor shortage um, is making it to where people are getting um, less able to keep up with the rate of change. And um, they're not implementing all the security controls that they have set in their policy as well as they used to. And I think that's most likely be um, tied to those things that I, that I just talked about. Um, but they're... Um, like the complexity and the labor shortage. But one of the things that I think people can, um, can leverage in order to kind of keep up with the um, security configurations is to make it a little bit more um, policy-based with some automation. So there's um, some companies that I've seen out there that are starting to come up in, um, as uh, security practices where that's what they do is they build um, security automation so you're able to keep up with that because it's computers that are keeping that policy implemented as opposed to relying on the, the humans. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a, makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, it's a human error. It seems like that there's a lot of risk of human error in this in terms of misconfiguration and um, especially when you throw in the, the labor shortage that you, you mentioned as well. All right, we're here with Chad Baker talking about cybersecurity. We're going to take a quick break and we'll continue the conversation when we come back. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, 
Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 66. We're here with Chad Baker from LAE Software talking about cybersecurity. So what about number two? We're getting close here. What's number yeah. two? On your <laughs> yeah, so so I think number two is what really kind of gave me the idea for this being a kind of a talk, because um, this thing, this annoyed, this really annoyed me. Um, so security controls can create different problems. So what that means is... Uh, uh, you have a way that people are successfully attacking an organization and um, lots of times you can't really think out quickly the security control you're going to implement to help stop those attackers. So you kind of maybe overreact on some things. Um, but the one that really annoys me is the um, this, that's kind of the general thing is that those controls can create different problems. Um, but one example of that is the, the banners on emails uh, that come from external so I'm sure everybody's probably seen that where you get a um, you get an email. And there's a big banner at the top that says, hey, this originated from outside the organization. Um, be especially careful uh, clicking on links, that type of thing. So what they're trying to do is give people information to remind them that, hey, this could be an attack. Uh, be a little more be a little more vigilant here. But um, what I think people didn't expect is that uh that causes problems with uh, signing of emails. So mm -hmm. one of the one of the ways to increase the authenticity of the data you're getting is you can get a certificate um, from a trusted uh, certificate authority, and you can actually sign your emails, which is something I was doing. Um, and so those emails, whenever anybody would get an email, it would be signed, and you knew that that email came from me. So it makes it harder for people to spoof email addresses. Um, so it's kind of a, um, a stronger security control. However, <laughs> when you sign emails and they go into somebody's email system that has those banners, uh, what it did is it would take that signed email and it would add it as an attachment to the message. And so all people would see in the message is that banner that said, hey, this, this came from the outside, be extra careful. And then they're saying, be extra careful. And then that message is sitting there as an attachment. And I think people are a little more careful with attachments than they are at reading the content of a message. So um, people wouldn't open the message. Um, so I had a few people that asked me, like, hey, weren't you supposed to email this? I'm like, I did. Um, so I actually had to turn off my email signing because of this. So that's why it, uh, it's annoying to me. <laughs> yeah. And it's back to that number 10 one, that easy and secure. You know, it, that was a very secure process you had in place. But it wasn't effective or easy to communicate with right. the people you needed to. Yeah. That's super interesting. That, that one, I wasn't, uh, I hadn't thought of that one either. That's, that's a good one. Um, and then, uh, number one, what's, what's number one on our, on your top 10 list here. Yeah. So number one is that phishing attacks are still the easiest way to get a foothold in a company. Um, so, you know, like kind of looking at the, the different things within security, um, when you know, there's a problem, and uh, you, you come up with a resolution and you fix it, you know, that, that's great. There's going to be problems. People are going to come up with resolutions, but phishing attacks is still the easiest way for people to gain access. Um, and I think it kind of goes back to the, um, uh, basically the people side of it, they happen mm -hmm. to trust people. Um, and the, uh, so attackers are getting better at slipping past kind of the, the SMTP filtering rules. Um, and getting people to, um, get, well, one of the other ways too is that they get inside access. They're sending the email from the inside as opposed to the outside. Um, and then people, because people are busy, they have moments of weakness, 
they they get an email from somebody and they they still click that link and then it's asking for their user id and password and they just, oh they're just kind of not thinking enter it and then next thing you know um, an attacker has access to your systems yeah yeah and that's uh so I, I think you answered this already but the the reason this is number one on your list or the reason it's such a big deal is because of that human imperfection and the fact that we you know, we have moments of weakness, like you talked about before, we tend to trust people, we're imperfect. Uh, sometimes the the need for security isn't well communicated to the organization. So you add up all those things and it almost creates this perfect storm of vulnerability where it's it's easy to attack for an outsider. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's kind of it. Like this is kind of the, um, the culmination of a lot from the list <laughs> right all kind of tied into the same thing that still doesn't have a, a great solution yeah yeah and actually a, a question from the audience that um is actually a really good sort of a capstone question to to, to bring this all together so you, you talked about a lot of stuff here in this top 10 list there's a lot to think about and you know if i'm a it person or you know managing this function within any organization it's enough to make your head spin so if I'm, this question is from Kyler on LinkedIn, and she says, if organizations had to prioritize a few key security initiatives due to resourcing shortages or just, you know, competing priorities for that matter, what would your top recommendations be? So in other words, you know, if we look at these 10 things you've talked about and we can't address all 10, let's just say, uh, or or we can't address everything in this world of cybersecurity all at once, you know, what are the, what are the ways that we could cherry pick some things or how would you prioritize uh, some of the cybersecurity risks and vulnerabilities that companies have. Yeah. So um, to kind of address the, uh, the, the shortage side of it, um, one of the things that I'd recommend looking at is um, finding uh, some, some interns. So getting interns involved in cybersecurity, uh, giving people a path to a career, um, then you can kind of, that helps you find people and there's, they're going to make some mistakes because they're, they're people and they're new to um, cybersecurity. But I think that's one way to kind of help address the shortage. Um, the, the other big thing would be to, um, and I'm talking about the people side first and I'll get to kind of more of the, like what security controls to focus on. Sure. Um, the, the other thing I would look for too is look for people who love to automate. Um, that doesn't necessarily need to be a cybersecurity person. Um, so finding people from other parts of IT, so like uh, on the infrastructure side, on the development side, people who just like to write applications to solve problems, bringing them into a security organization can help you um, or training the people you have within the security organization on automation techniques can help um, address the, the amount of the um, help them to be more powerful so they can do more so they can keep up with the complexity. They can make sure that everything is done the exact same way every time. So that way um, you're not missing something like on a security configuration perspective. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's the people side of it. Um, and then getting back to like, well, what you say, you can't find the people or the automation to help you. Um, what are the things that you should focus on? And I would say first look at your industry Um and then from the industry, uh, look at the, and there's consultants that can help with that as well. So people who can come in and say here for this industry, I recommend you run these different controls. Here's how you prioritize them. Um, but the, uh, the NIST organization has some, uh, a list that you can, that you can get and look in like, like what their top 10 controls are. 
Um, you can find uh, NIST controls that apply to certain industries, and then that can help you prioritize which ones to address first. Mm. Um, one of the, the, you know, just kind of off the top of my head, one of the biggest controls to implement um, to help is the uh, multi-factor authentication. So if you don't already have multi-factor authentication, get that in place. Um, I think the encryption um, in transit is usually handled pretty well. Most people do that. Um, that's the HTTPS in, in when you're hitting a website. Um, the, the next one there to kind of look at is the encryption at rest. So if, if you're using database technology, some of them have encryption built in. So you can encrypt um, tables that are the most important. Because um, one thing to keep in mind with encryption too is um, you're adding processing. So that's going to add either cost or um, some latency to applications. So you kind of want to do it in the right spot. Um, so or looking at disk arrays that if you're still um, have in-house infrastructure, looking at disk arrays that just have in, uh, encryption on all the time, that helps cover the uh, encryption at rest. So those are kind of the, the three big ones I would look at first. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like the the human part of it, if you were just to, if all you did was just made people aware and just increased awareness throughout your organization on what some of these cybersecurity risks are and why it's so important and, you know, and just helping people understand it. I feel like that could be a huge, easy, low hanging fruit sort of thing. You know, just back to your point earlier of it not being a uh, CISO or an IT department thing, it's actually responsibility of the entire organization if you if you sort of double down on that and you know communicate to the entire organization and make sure everyone understands it, it seems like that alone would have a pretty big impact on on your cybersecurity efforts yeah i i totally agree um i think the you know one of the things that security groups do to try to help people to re remind them to be careful when it comes to like phishing attacks um is they'll do the, the fake phishing attack right so they'll kind of test mm -hmm. test people they'll send out the the email that um, they craft to look like, say, your fidelity um, information for your business. And what they're trying to do there is kind of test people to see if they can recognize a phishing attack. Um, and they, what happens is um, people, well, the people who get caught by it, right? They either have to watch a video or do a training. They, they get kind of a punishment, right? Um, but it's kind of funny is it's the, it's usually the same 20% of people that keep getting caught. <laughs> right. So the, 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 uh, the punishment method, it, I don't know if that's working too great. Um, I, I agree. I think people understanding, well, what really is the impact would, would go a long way. Yeah. 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 Well, this is good stuff. I mean, this is super helpful and, uh, you've given us a lot to think about, you know, as it relates to cybersecurity. And I know, you know, from my perspective, I, I feel like I understand it a lot better and there's different dimensions of it that I, I wasn't aware of several of these things in your top 10 list. I, I wasn't aware of or hadn't thought of. So I think this is super helpful. Um, so really appreciate having you here today. So thanks. Thanks for being part of the show. Yeah. Thank you, Eric. And how can people now, uh, one last thing I wanted to cover is, is you, your company, LAE, um, creates different software applications. Um, one of yeah. which I know you're working on a cybersecurity uh, related sort of application. If someone wants to uh, try a beta of that or that or any of your other products, how, how could they go about do that or how could they yes. go about doing that? Yeah. So we have um, one main product right now, which helps kind of limit the risk of having uh, outlook data files on computers. So it's kind of an automated solution to migrate that data to Office 365. So it's kind of protected there. That's PST Migrator. So that one's available now. And then we are building um, some cybersecurity related products, one of which we're, we're trying to build to help 
um, help stop phishing attacks. We're trying to attack that problem. Um, so if you would like to get involved in the beta program there, just go to our website, which is laesoftware.com. And there's a link in there to sign up for the, uh, the beta program. Um, or you can also find me on LinkedIn, just Chad Baker and LE Software. You'll find me that way. Or I think it's uh, Chad D. Baker with the, if you do the slashes. <laughs> right. Okay. Thank you, Chad. Great conversation. A lot to think about and unpack there. A lot of things that I added to my to-do list of things that I need to do uh, with cybersecurity within our own organization, as well as with our clients as well. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Kyler and I will unpack some of the things we talked about there and uh, talk a bit more about cybersecurity. So we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 66. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler, and, and Kyler, we just had Chad Baker on the show, and he talked uh, about cybersecurity. What what were some of your thoughts about his overview of cybersecurity as well as his top 10 list? Yeah, absolutely. I thought that the CIAA analogy um, was really helpful because that is really easy to understand, and specifically the integrity piece, and then um, relating it to that pop culture reference of office space. Um, right. If you haven't seen office space here in the U.S., it is a is, uh, um, a really beloved movie about how a few accountants are shaving just pennies off of the overall ROI of a company, or I guess the revenue of a company. And um, they actually make a lot of money doing that. So really now um, that is a real threat to cybersecurity. So that was a, you know, a great, a great kind of way to um, showcase and explain that. That movie is way ahead of its time. I, I knew it, it all along. I've always loved that movie. And that's for that reason, not only is it hilarious, but it was ahead of its yeah. time. <laughs> it, it just is. It's a funny movie. And there's a lot of actually um, digital transformation references in there. So I put it on my blog list. So everyone stay tuned um, for a blog that I'm trying to get to next week for that. So um, and then I also I was shocked about the two factor authentication piece and and the overall um, connection to labor shortage. Like it makes perfect sense that that would be something that would be a threat. 
Um, but I had no idea, you know, that these specific hackers can call and say like, hey, I'll, I sent you a code. Can you read me the code? Those types of things. Because a lot of people at, are now outsourcing a lot of IT support because they don't have that internal resource right now. Uh, so I thought that was fascinating yet terrifying, um, you know, for an IT organization that might not be huge, but it might be not small. That type of mid-target tier looks like, you know, you'd want to be able to have that specific training with your team and that overall um, scenario-based training to understand what that looks like. Yeah. And if you're a big multinational company with tens or hundreds of thousands of employees, you could see how that would be a huge exposure point to just, you know, you or I could get on the phone and call someone and say, Hey, this is John from tech support. Um, I'm working on blah, blah, blah. And I need, I just need your four digit uh, verif code, verification code. You should have just got an email with that or, or a text message. And then you would look at your text message or email and be like, Oh yeah, I did just get it. Wow. You must be credible. Yeah, John, here you go. Yeah, John, he sounds legit. And there's 200,000 other people in this company. So I have no idea who John is, but that's okay. Um, yeah. But I could see that being a real issue. I never even thought of that until yeah. uh, until you mentioned it. Yeah, um, definitely something to consider if you are a bigger organization and having, you know, that visibility to what that looks like or just, you know, raising the red flag around um, <laughs> that real um, risk there. Um, I also like how you talked about the easy versus secure because that mm -hmm. for me is a main issue, right? Mm -hmm. Like you go through, what do you need to be able to do to do your job? But how do you do that securely? And I think a lot of times that perception around that is, you know, that it is annoying per his mm -hmm. list um, to be in this really secure uh, interaction with different systems or access points within the business. But I think that perfectly sums up the misperception of cybersecurity is it should be easy to use. You should be able to access everything to do your job, but you have to have some sort of stop gates to ensure that your overall um, data and, and other information is protected. Yeah. And for companies that are going through digital transformations or any sort of uh, software deployments, you know, as, as Chad was talking about that, I could, I could see how an organization going through that sort of transition could fall into the trap of, defining and, and designing and building and deploying a, a system that is focused more on being easier to use because you get so much pushback from employees when you have something that's not easy to use. And so you get through the testing cycles, user acceptance testing, conference or pilots or whatever, and you'll inevitably have people that want to cut steps out that seem like they're a pain in the butt, but they're things that are necessary for cybersecurity purposes. So you could see how that dynamic could lead to a pretty unsecure solution being rolled out, even though the technology might have the capabilities or the ability to lock down that stuff. And so really educating people on the importance of cybersecurity and making sure it's not just one person or a CISO or an IT director, CIO or whatever, it shouldn't just be those people that are focused on it, although they should be some sort of checkpoint there to make sure that they sign off on the cybersecurity aspects of it. Um, you can see how that create conflict, especially during a transformation when you're rolling out new technology. I can only imagine, especially in in not only some hot topics we've covered in previous weeks about um, the need for more employee focused technology that is, you know, an easy to use interface and not really 
uh, enhances a remote working culture, but also the migration of these bigger tech companies to a remote working culture. I can only imagine the challenge of having, you know, obviously being a target for cybersecurity as a technology company, but also trying to manage to a remote workforce could be really, really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's another whole other dimension or another layer that we didn't have to deal with yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, and that goes right along with the um, RTFM, the fun to read email, which I'm definitely going to use from now right. on. <laughs> but um, just explaining the why behind it. Um, and I like his suggestion of that um, impact per record as that that revenue is kind of the the omni-channel language of business. You know, everyone can understand what it means to lose money no matter where you work in the business and being able to kind of quantify that risk and explaining why, you know, people should really care about cyber cybersecurity initiatives, I think is a really, really effective tactic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's an easy, low-hanging fruit. It's not all you need, but it's, it's a good start, you know, if you can just simply educate people on what all this stuff means, why it's so important and whatnot. Absolutely. Um, you know, and and I like um, I liked how he talked about kind of, he went from like legacy systems and what that means as far as outdated applications and mm -hmm. the risk there of not being updated. So I wondered if you could tell us um, what at what frequency or what processes should be in place to make sure that you are identifying or auditing those applications to ensure that they are up to cybersecurity standards? Well, it actually reminds me of a project or a couple of projects I was involved with 15, maybe, maybe 20 years ago, um, shortly after the United States and other companies there, any company that was listed on the U.S. stock exchange um, had a rule uh, called Sarbanes-Oxley about 15 or 20 years ago. And it was after the uh, it was after all the Enron fallout and all the mm -hmm. um, internal um, issues that led to Enron and some of the lack of governance controls, corporate governance and controls. It reminds me of that a little bit because um, one of the some of the projects I did after, including for a big multinational company, was to as part of a, a big ERP implementation and rollout across the globe. We had to also make sure that the Sarbanes Oxley controls were in place because it was regulated. It was a publicly traded company. And the U.S. government required you to have these controls in place and to be audited every so often. So we would design the business processes, design sort of the roles and responsibilities and the security profiles in the system. And then we would have to go over all that and get the approval from the internal auditors who would then look at that and say, yes, you know, this does meet Sarbanes-Oxley protocols or no, it doesn't in these areas. Here's what we need to need to do to fix it. So I could almost see it being a, a sort of a either a checkpoint where just like you would have an auditor look at segregation of duties, making sure that, um, for example, the same person that creates a vendor can't also pay the vendor. Because mm. if I'm working for a company and I create a vendor named Eric Kimberling LLC and I can also go in there and pay Eric Kimberling LLC a million dollars, that's that's a big loophole that you can't have with Sarbanes-Oxley compliance. So you think about stuff like that, like how do you how do you ensure that? maybe you've designed the easy process as part of your implementation, but now you need the CI or the, not the CI, the CISO or the IT group or whoever is ultimately responsible, even though it should be everyone's responsibility. There's gotta be someone that's ultimately responsible for making sure it, it passes some sort of litmus test. So 
I could see that being one one angle. The other angles you could have more cybersecurity resources and focus throughout the design cycles and the build cycles of, of software rollouts too. So there's a few different ways you could address that. Very interesting. Yeah, I, th I think that's something that, you know, obviously businesses should be considering, um, you know, as, as technology becomes stale, seeing that as not only technical debt, right, from a cost standpoint, but a, a risk to the overall security of the business. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and the, the last point I'll, I'll look at is he talked not only about kind of those legacy systems, but also those emerging technologies. When we look at AI, predictive analytics, and, and some of the risks there, and he gave that example, the scariest example, in my opinion, was the self-driving cars and people hacking them and what that looks like. Because yeah. I just had this like huge like flash of being in one of those self-driving taxis that they already have, you know, Uber has some of those in bigger hub spots. Um, and, you know, just the overall huge, huge nature of security when it comes to that. And it's so interesting because we did a study on how human error, or we talked about a study in our hot topics a few weeks back about how human error causes traffic accidents and mm -hmm. seeing technology as uh, a solution or resolution to that risk of human life. And now we're talking about like, well, they can also be hacked and you're like, well, what am I supposed to, am I supposed to drive self-driving cars or what am I, <laughs> right. what are we doing? <laughs> so, yeah, we all want to automate, we all, but we also want to be in control. It's, it's just sort of a, there's a conflict there that we have to work past. It's not always rational and the data sometimes refutes those fears, but we're human and we have them. So that's, that's interesting for sure. Yeah. But excellent overall, excellent overview. And if you'd like to hear more from Chad Baker, you can um, search Chad Baker on our YouTube channel and he has um, his keynote on there as well from our Digital Stratosphere 2022 event, which he rounded out on the third day uh, with his uh, keynote. So definitely some great information and also a great connection. Chad is just as a thought leader in the cybersecurity space. Yeah, yeah, he definitely knows his stuff and it is good to have him on the on the show again. And you can also go to Stratosphere 2022 and, and hear not only his session there as well, but you can see see and listen to all the sessions that we did over the three days earlier this year. Uh, every, a lot of different topics related to digital transformation. So I encourage you to check that out if you haven't seen that already. So, well, yep. So thanks for that that uh, debrief. And thank you again to Chad for being on the show. That was a good, really good discussion. I, I certainly learned a lot. And uh, speaking of learning a lot, someone else I learned a lot from is Christy Barber. And we're going to have her on the show here after a quick break. She's going to be on the show talking about small business consulting within digital transformation or consulting for small businesses in digital transformation. And uh, this is really interesting if you're either if you're a consultant interested in going into consulting and or uh, an outside firm or a, an organization looking to hire consultants, uh, this will be a good conversation for you. So we're going to play you this clip from our sister podcast, the Digital Stratosphere podcast, um, and we'll bring her onto the show right after this break. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, 
Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 66. This is Eric Kimberlin with Kyler Cheatham, and we have our next guest queued up here, uh, who's Christy Barber, Senior Manager at Third Stage Consulting. She's going to be on the show talking about consulting for small and mid-sized companies, and uh, she's going to share some of her experience and some of the things to look for uh, in that realm. And this is actually a video clip or an interview that, Kyler, you conducted with Christy as part of our Digital Stratosphere podcast, which is a, a sister podcast that has uh, smaller bite-sized chunks of interviews and discussion points uh, versus the more free form, the longer free form version and format of this show. So if you haven't already subscribed or if you, if that format interests you, you can also subscribe to digital stratosphere, which you can find in the same places you find this podcast, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all the audio podcast platforms. So all that being said, let's cut to the interview of Kyler and Christy talking about uh, small and mid market consulting and digital transformation. I'm really excited about this conversation, particularly because I feel like, Christy, you don't have the linear pathway that a lot of um, our consultants do because you are a, a very accomplished entrepreneur um, and from a family of entrepreneurs as well, which makes you, um, you know, uniquely qualified to help a lot of our entrepreneurial or small business clients. Um, so can you kind of just give us your your background, you know, where where did you go to school? How did you get into this? Um, those types of things. Yeah, so I went to school in California. It was a small, smaller school, like about 3000 people. Um, because back in, believe it or not, I was like a really shy person and being around a lot of people. I was like, oh, this is kind of scary. And now it's totally opposite. But uh, even in business school there, wanting to do, I always knew I wanted to have my own business or be out on my own some capacity. And in my MBA program, one of the classes was you work with a consulting firm and you do some work for them for credit and stuff like that. And it was a really fun opportunity to just kind of test the waters of, is this really what I would like to do? Because a lot of times they don't, I think schools don't give you the opportunity to know that there's many paths to go. It's kind of more narrow in university settings of there's one or the other. And I mean, originally I started out, I wanted to be a tax accountant. And for some reason, I thought that was the path I should go down. <laughs> and that that changed after I graduated undergrad and trying to get a job in the accounting world. I, was, I did it for about seven years and I just didn't enjoy it. it wasn't for me. and then even, uh, and I think that made it uh, kind of come true in master's program of working in this consulting firm and kind of dipping my toes in the water of saying, yeah, this is fun. I, I enjoy this. And I worked in that firm too, was a lot with manufacturing and distribution. And that's mm -hmm. always been the industries I'm most interested in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't believe that you were shy because you're, I know, right? <laughs> you're our, um, you know, our our chameleon consultant that can go into any even very high, highly charged conversation and make everyone feel um, very comfortable. Uh, so I'm, 
I'm curious when you first kind of started in in consulting, was that with um, you know a bigger consulting firm or did you kind of do it on your own? No, I started. It was a little firm, about three people, is how I got started, and then kind of did a couple different career paths. That was when I still lived in California. When I moved to Denver, I went and I started working at a manufacturing company and I was their CFO and then plant manager and kind of went that route and then went back to finance for a minute because I missed it and then went out on my own and started doing more of the consulting that way. So why do you feel like you have um, the affinity or, you know, skill set for those more entrepreneurial based businesses or small family owned businesses? Why is that always such a good fit for you? I think a lot of it is that's what I grew up in. My family is very entrepreneurial. They have a variety of businesses. They've they've started, they've sold, they've kept all of that. I've been around a lot of people in just different settings, and that's the environment they come from. And there's something about it that's just fun for me of this high energy, tight deadlines, chaos, and trying to bring it all under control. I think I'm one of the few that that enjoys those types of settings and. It, it's been fun to meet people where they're at in in their business and try to help direct them to hit their future goals. And how do you feel like helping those small businesses with technology kind of changes their overall structure? Because a lot of times, I think uh, a lot of times we don't understand that the digital transformation space for for small business is truly a business transformation. Like it's almost impossible to keep that siloed as an IT project or anything like that. Um, so I, I wonder if you could kind of speak to what that looks like from a technology perspective. Yeah, because they are smaller companies. It, it does bleed over into the entire company. Everybody is touching it. Whereas a larger company, you're going to have core groups that would be touching the IT project and nobody else would until final when you have to actually train and use it. And I think being able to understand that and then working with these smaller businesses of getting that buy-in really quickly and helping them understand, hey, this is where we're going to go. And I mean, I just got back from a trip this week and it's a larger organization, but it's small how they function. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool to see somebody saying, hey, yeah, this is my job role, but I could see where I can help in, in these areas too. I, I want to be a part of that. And, cool. I, and I, I like to welcome that in. Yeah, that cross collaboration or cross function is definitely always great to see from our client communities because it just enhances their ability to have a successful technology implementation or business transformation for sure. So before we dive into the client work that you um, help us, you know, produce here at Third Stage, um, how is consulting a lifestyle for you? How does it fit within your overall schedule? What's kind of a day in the life of Christy look like? It's probably very different than most people. <laughs> um, I'm not a morning person, so I like the flexibility of I usually don't start until nine o'clock every day. I may get up a little bit earlier and just kind of take my time and then working throughout the day, maybe taking breaks to go to the gym or have lunch with friends or, you know, I, I do a lot of volunteer work and come back and then, you know, work some more. And there's, you know, travel also here and there when it's necessary to go to the offices. But I like being able to work from anywhere 
I can go on vacation and well, vacation, um, <laughs> work, work vacations. Uh, like I went to Florida last year for a week and it was vacation, but I, I worked the whole time I was there and it was nice to be able to say, Hey, I'm gonna work a half day and then go out to the beach and hang out with friends and come back and visit with family, all of that. And I, for me, that fits my personality. Well, I don't like, um, I worked in a corporate setting for a quick minute in the finance world and I didn't like, Hey, we only work from this time to work this time. And there are no if, ands or buts about it. And I think the consulting world allows me to adapt to a schedule that I, I like and where I'm mm -hmm. most creative, where I'm most productive. Yeah. I remember when I had, um, one of my children, I can't even remember at this point. Um, and I was up with them in the middle of the night and I had, um, I was just working, um, you know, and, and I, uh, sent you a message and you were like, what are you doing up at this? <laughs> you know, usually nobody's here. Uh, but I think that's, you know, such a, a great piece of that balance is you really do get to make your own schedule. Is there a, a dark side to that? Um, you know, do you ever feel like you're always connected or always on or how do you kind of manage that? Yeah, I think that can that can be a problem for me because it almost goes to the workaholic stage a little bit of, well, I want to get all of this done. And when you work at a company, it's like, hey, well, we're all done at five o'clock. That's it. And everybody knows where something like this, we're working from home or on the road and an email comes in. It's like, well, yeah, I could answer this right now. But being able to decide what what works best with your um, health boundaries and all of that. For a while, I was working weekends and all nights, pretty much for a while. And I'm like, well, this is not the best. You know, I'm yeah. absent from from things that are going around, and I need to make that more of a priority. So saying, hey, I work within these timelines or whatever these days, and taking off, not working weekends or stuff like that. I I do work late at night a lot of times just because. It's a it's quiet. Nobody's calling you, and you can get a, get a lot done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know, I I every time we do these live streams, which is every Friday, we do kind of our meet the team so that our audience and community can learn about the different you know options when it comes to being a part of our team. And uh, and it's always so funny. I feel like we're a group, a culture of corporate you know defectors or disruptors. Like we we of uh, many of us though we you know are very very um high go-getters a really intense type of work in environment but also we don't value that you know you badge in you badge out you those types of things when it should be more performance based as opposed to kind of those technicalities mm -hmm. do you feel kind of the same way yeah i would agree and that's something that i really enjoy about the third stage culture it is that it's not based on what you would see if you maybe worked at a Deloitte or a more mm -hmm. larger consulting firm where you have parameters you have to go by and it's more quantity versus quality. And I think here the culture is we want to be able to provide the best service that we can to all of our clients. And that and that's the focus of it. And that's what's brought down to to us and even the way that we do the work that we do. Absolutely. I think it creates, um, at least for me, that kind of trust of, you know, it, it doesn't 
you know that that person is going to get back to you. Like, there's no question about that, right? Like the, the deliverables will be quality and on time and the collaboration will be there, but it might not be exactly, you know, in these core working hours. Um, mm-hmm. And I always really value that piece of it is I don't have to worry about, you know, what our colleagues will produce because I know, you know, that they're they're talented in whatever subject matter area that they are. So there's no need really to, you know, kind of micromanage on that level. And I always appreciate that autonomy as an employee myself. Yeah. So what would you say to, um, you know, our younger audience members? We've done a lot recently kind of in the higher education space. And and it seems as though there's a common misperception about consulting that it's not, uh, it, it doesn't give you any sort of stability. And, you know, that can be a, a real huge value for a young person coming into the workforce. And I wondered what you thought about that. There's a lot of stability and it's what you want out of it. You put in what you want to get out. So there's a lot of flexibility in it. If you want to work really hard, you can have a lot of clients. If you don't want to, you, you can work with one or two. And I think that's where the misconception comes that you're continually riding this roller coaster mm-hmm. of I'm making money, I'm not making money. And I don't. I don't see that to be true. And I I think that's just perceptions of what people have seen with larger firms of you get on a project and the project goes for five years. And here our projects look a little bit different. They may, they may go for a year, two years straight or something like that, or, or we have shorter ones that are eight weeks, 10 weeks. And you, you're able to be matched to what fits best with mm-hmm. how you work. Do you like being on longer term projects? Great. Let's let's find and we want to put you on those. You like the quick turnarounds like me? Of like, hey, let's do an eight to 10 week project. Let's see how we can get it all done and hit the timelines. Those are what I enjoy. And that's where I thrive. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the next section of it. And I, yeah, it provides a lot of value. How do you, how did you, um, kind of carve out this space for yourself um, in this kind of niche area. It's it's always interesting to me, you know, and, and my director peers always talking about, you know, you're, um, you're who they need. And, you know, they literally fight over you, which is funny. Yeah, it's you know, funny. <laughs> how it works. It um, works here at Thursdays when you are especially talented. I was talking to Mitch last week and I'm like, you always know the consultants that, um you know, are highly valued by our clients because they're never available (laughs) for things like this. Um, And you luckily, you know, you make time for it because I know that you're right in in that very, very valued um, client relationship. But you are kind of unique in the fact that you um, you really do own the small business type of role here. And then kind of that entrepreneurial or if for lack of a more professional term, if an organization is a complete and hot mess, you're usually the one we tap to say, like, we're going to need some help here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wondered, you know, if you could kind of give us some insight on how you established that role within the third stage community. I think it comes from the lens of which I see businesses and which I see people and the strategy of how, how they come together. I think what gives me a a different leg up, I guess, compared to others is having this financial background of mine that I did have and coming Mm -hmm. in and looking at things from more monetarily, but then being able to make operational decisions based off the way that the money's flowing. And it was interesting. I had a conversation about that 
with a client earlier this week and and we were talking about that same thing of you know looking operationally we want to do this but i have no metrics i have no nothing to pull to be able to make these operational decisions and i need to build a financial dashboard and i think that's where a lot of my experience comes from is mm -hmm. let's build this out and let's look at this whole project from a different way and they, they i mean even erp selection projects usually come of one of three ways it's either it driven operational driven or um, financially driven and then i try to look at them holistically more based off my own experience and i think that's where it kind of changes and then even coming from small business and family business and all of that trying to really get to know my clients i don't mm -hmm. like to see people's transactions i want to know them and keep up friendships with them and I had that even last week, I went to dinner, one of our clients was in town and called me and I worked on a project with them about a year and a half ago. And it's fun to still have, have those relationships. And how do you, um, how do you balance the, you know, the plethora of industries you kind of go from? Cause I know you've worked in everything from textiles to agriculture to all kinds of things. I mean, you could probably rattle off a ton of different industries and verticals you've worked with. Um, but is there a core component that you find that's kind of centralized across each business looking to implement a new technology? Yeah, and people don't like when, when I say this, but at the end of the day, building a business starting it's not unique at all everybody uses the same foundation and what you need what becomes unique is how you service your customer or some of how you build uh your in your end product and that's really the only thing that's different it's it's not unique and once you learn the foundations of that you can pretty much go into any industry and then picking up the things that are different so for example aerospace and defense mm -hmm. it's one i work in and there's there's unique things to how it runs as a whole, but as you build it out, it's the same process that a food company may have of how I'm gonna build something. I just have different quality checks that I have to have on an A&D space that meet government requirements. Mm -hmm. And from a, a technology or software right -sizing, right sizing perspective, how do you go in and say, okay, I know each business essentially and foundationally is the same but this business needs X, Y, and Z as functionalities within a software. How do you kind of pull those out, identify them, and then help them select the best software for their organization? So I'll go through in these workshops and we'll, we'll start writing out, let's do a day in the life. What do you do from start to finish? And I'll know in my head, the process usually goes like this. And then hearing where they're coming from, it's like, oh, this is identified as, as a bottleneck right here. Let, let's talk more about this, what's going on. and and try to figure out you know a strategy around or a solution or whatever that we're going to fix it and that's normally what i see in instances like that excellent and so you had mentioned i'm kind of jumping all over the place before we get totally to fine. <laughs> before because i just really want to like dig into your background because I, I think it's so fascinating and such a huge value so you talked a little bit about you know being able to have kind of those core components and understanding of how to build a business how to make a business successful because of your family's background can you talk a little bit more about kind of what it was like to grow up in that entrepreneur community yeah, so at eight years old, I started working. <laughs> Summers, um, my family, we have uh, some retail business and then we have agriculture. 
and then some other odds and ends here and there, like be an accounting firm and that. So I worked there also. Mm-hmm. And I think being exposed to a lot of different things at a young age was really beneficial. And my grandpa was a huge instrument in all of it of teaching me of, hey, this is how we do things. And the, these are ways to, you know, learn something else. And I remember one I think it was in high school, you have to take an economics class and they were teaching you how to, you know, buy stocks and mutual funds and all of that. And he taught me, he's like, here's how you research for it. And here's how you make decisions. And this is how, you know, the companies vote and they, they do things like that. And it, it just gave me a different perspective of how businesses work because schools don't, don't teach you that mm-hmm. and learning firsthand. And I think that's where some of that spark came of, I can be so much more than what school is telling me I can be because I don't, and I'm the rogue person too. I'm like, Oh, rules. Oh, I speaking, like rules. My language. <laughs> yes, for sure. So, yeah. And there was some of that, even in school, you're telling me this is the only way mm-hmm. that I can go to do what I want to do. I'm like, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. And then it just starts from there of learning to talk to mentors and reading books and talking to net, you know, network, going to networking events, talking to various people mm-hmm. and learning, Hey, you have these skills. There's a plethora of things that you can do with these skills. And that was what kind of helped change the progression of the the journey that I wanted to be on. Yeah, I totally understand. You're preaching to the the choir there. I always, whenever anyone asks me to speak at a university, I'm always like, are you sure you want me to speak? I know, don't choose me. (laughs) Because I'm always the first one to say, you know, education creates a box sometimes. Although we obviously are very privileged here, specifically in um, North America, to have that access, um, which we always, you know, are cognizant of. But uh, a lot of times it it can teach people all of the misperceptions, which is a lot of times why I like to get into higher education to have that conversation about the opportunities that come with consulting, you know, the development of specifically women in STEM um, and that type of more technology piece. And so you are literally the the only woman sometimes on our um, YouTube channels and podcasts. <laughs> and so I wondered if you could kind of give us that perspective of what that journey has been um, and how you would you would give advice to any other um, student or anything like that, that that might be considering a career in technology, but doesn't really have that representation of either gender, race, whatever. Yeah, it's it's weird. I was actually had a conversation about this yesterday at dinner with a friend of, you know, some some projects I'm on, I'm not as respective as, as a male in the room. And I think unlike most ladies, it doesn't bother me. I'm like, that's fine. I'll use somebody else in the room to be my representative mm-hmm. and I uh, will, we'll plan behind the scenes and then we'll collect, we'll, we'll both show up and per- present something. And usually that's all it takes. Mm-hmm. And some of it's based on, you know, backgrounds, uh, you know, different countries that I've worked in and there's, there's different respect levels and things like that. And, and I respect that even because I know sure. a lot of people, they don't know what they don't know. And they've mm-hmm. only, they only know what they've been taught and what they've been around in their own environment. And so when, something comes in and it looks different, feels different. it's like, oh, wait a second. I don't know how I feel about this. (laughs) But overall, I I think I've fought very hard for every position I've ever had in my career. And also trying to, to come and 
bring a lot of value to, to the table because I've seen, and I've read multiple articles and I'm sure you've seen them too, is most ladies, whenever they want a raise, they're like, well, you know, I don't really deserve it because I haven't done this or this. Guys will come in and be like, hey, I deserve a raise. This is how much I should get. And it should go on my next check because the confidence levels are different when they show mm-hmm. up to the table with that. And it was an art, it, it really made sense to me then. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, yeah, that's a good thing to like fight fight for in respect mm-hmm. of being like, I am very valuable. I know these knowledge, mm-hmm. knowledge here and there, and I deserve this just as much as my counterpart does. And so, Absolutely. yeah, I've had that. And I, I think even some sometimes like being around my own peers so most of my friends in college they chose different routes they wanted to be teachers or they want very different from what i wanted to be and i think there was this stigma even that oh i'm just after the money or i'm just after the limelight and all of that and it's like no i'm just as passionate about what you do with teaching children Mm -hmm. i'm just teaching adults and business owners and and giving them what they need to be successful like a teacher is and just having people see things from a different perspective absolutely i think that's really well said in establishing your overall value and learning to have those conversations i think a lot of us like like you and i um you know we really grew up within our careers in an industry that was fully male dominated like we almost became desensitized and i still kind of yeah look at around the room and say, Oh, I am literally, I'm the only female here. Um, and a lot of times I think that just becomes a normal thing. And, and I know, you know, you do a ton of volunteer work and uh, you're always up for, you know, exposing your work here on our, our marketing channels. Um, and I think our, our message is so similar of there is so much room for all types of genders, backgrounds. Um, We just had this conversation a few weeks ago at a lecture that we did about the creatives in technology. And I know yourself, you you do um, photography on the side um, and are very creative. Um, So I wondered if I could kind of ask your opinion on, you know, we obviously know that technology has a a very technical side, but also has a very ingenuitive, creative, Mm -hmm. problem solving side, which you've kind of already mentioned. Do you feel like you fit in one of those or you're kind of just a, a hybrid? You're a unicorn. Christine. Yeah, it's more of a hybrid. It's funny you talk about there's a guy. I don't know if you've ever read his book called The Nonconformist by Adam Grant. I haven't, but I will write it. About it. Uh, he's a podcast, too. Like if anybody's ever interested, check it out. It's it's really eye opening. Of He talks about a lot of times people that are more of that hybrid personality of you're creative, but you're also strategic is all the time people and even school teachers all that they put you in this box of like you have to be one or the other you can't be both because you can't be successful at being both and when i read the book i was like oh yeah i see certain things like in my past or even currently of how people they're not comfortable with it and they're like "Mm, we want to shove you like over here and i think even recognizing that of what he said in the book allowed me a lot of freedom to be like no, I don't want to go over here where you're telling me to go. And this is why, and this is why I'll be more successful operating over here because it is creative. And I had a, an accounting teacher in college even tell me that he's like, you cannot be creative and math oriented at the same time. Mm -hmm. And if anybody knows me, which you've probably started to get to know me through the YouTube channels, I'm like, prove it. (laughs) (laughs) And I had a really successful career in Hollywood working with 
um, a lot of musicians for photography for a while. I just went on that route and wanted to do something creative and it was fun. That's awesome. Okay. We're here talking with Kyler and Christy about consulting for small business in digital transformation. We're going to take a quick break. We'll pick up the conversation when we return with more transformation ground control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 66. We're here talking with Christy Barber about small business consulting and digital transformation. I really like your message of it doesn't have to be one way or another. Um, I know when I went through my college career, I I am terrible at math. You know, you and I couldn't be more polar opposite on that. And they they literally even told me I wasn't smart enough to, um, you know, go into any of the STEM programs because I couldn't qualify with those math tests. Um, and I've never been good at standardized tests. My brain Me just works differently. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of people. But a lot of times we get put in this box of you need to do A or B or you're not smart enough at all to do technology. And it holds and you back from all the things that you could do. Because mm -hmm. here's the thing. If you're taking a standardized test, all you need to know is how to memorize something. You never need to remember it again. Where if you're actually learning something like what multi or um, what is it like short answer form tests? Yeah. I was always really good at those because yeah. I was like, let's talk about this and yeah. let's let's draw it out and you know the other kinds like even SAT. I just colored in the bubbles. I'm yeah. like, great, you know, C sounds like a good answer. A over here, and we'll see what happens. And yeah, it was pretty terrible. <laughs> I I didn't like that part of it. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, really what we try to say here at third stage is there's room for all types. We have people that specialize in, we've had people that, you know, have had their own, you know, small farm, you know, we've, we've yeah. had tons of, of backgrounds that um, really do welcome that type of, of consulting community. And I think that's why we do these types of live streams is just to showcase and really buck any misperception of you have to be, you know, able to code or an engineer, or, I mean, those are all great careers in general. And we always welcome, mm -hmm. you know, that background too, but there's also a, a ton of opportunity, opportunity specifically within our change practitioners, because we always call them. Yeah therapist, which I know you do. You had that whole episode. If you haven't checked out Christy's podcast on family-owned businesses, it is fascinating. Um, she had it on our ground control podcast that will come out next week. Um, it's featured in there. And then we also recently um, played it on our digital stratosphere podcast. So definitely check that out because it's 
it's really fascinating of just the different um, behavioral dynamics and human psychology dynamics that you need to be able to look at when, especially when working in the small business community, because it, it, it is very vulnerable in having those conversations to a small business owner. Yeah. And these are skills. And I think we even talked about it on there of they don't teach you these things in school. They don't teach you, Hey, psych, psychology of handling clients that would be a great class no to take. Or, you should teach it yeah yeah like well i'll sign i'll get my friend the industrial psychologist yeah right right that. we should have her on the show i would love we to do. hear about like that that must be fascinating and but so important and it's so funny we've gotten to this point 2022 of our business culture when we finally realized oh we might need to understand how our employees work yeah well, and even like going back to what you said of, you know, standardized testing or even working from here, like if you have the ability to learn you mm -hmm. and you don't have the skills today, it doesn't matter. If you have the ability to learn and pick it up, that's worth more than than anything because you build it in your experience. And that, that's been a lot of like my whole career path. I've jumped into careers that I knew nothing about. But I would read books and talk to people and pretty soon I'm like, okay, this makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like you should put that line on a t-shirt and we can I should. <laughs> you probably know someone that makes t-shirts too. So <laughs> I do. We actually had a client here at Third Stage that made shirts, but I actually have a friend local that does it, um, which I do photography for them as well, doing different pieces of their clothing line. Very cool. Well, let's let's dig into a little bit about kind of your um, I, I know it's hard to like have an average client, but what typically does your client profile look like? I would say they are usually under. They're usually under one hundred and fifty million. Average, I would say, is around 50 million right now is what I've been working with. Um, they are either family owned or they at one time were in were bought out uh, by either a PE firm or somebody else mm -hmm. and a person coming in with just a lot of vision of where they want to take the company and knowing that the systems they currently have will not get them to where they need to go. Absolutely. And, and how does the team structure look like at third stage and how do you integrate with the client's team structure when it comes to selecting or implementing a new technology? So depending on the size of the project, I run a lot of solo projects mm -hmm. or I'll have a really small team of maybe two, two more people, including me based on, on the needs and the scope of the project. And then coming in, we'll have a project sponsor at the client's office that is our go-to person, always communicating with them. And we help them put together a small team that would be a part of the whole project. And usually that's anywhere from, you know, four people to eight. And then how do you kind of garner or gain or build that trust with the clients? And knowing that a lot of times for our small business dynamics, there can be, uh, you know, especially family owned, right, that we talked about, you know, there can be one person that really is interested in this new technology, but another person that's been there for 40 years that has their spreadsheets, that's created their processes. How do you kind of bridge that gap and gain the trust of the entire organization? A lot of it, at least for me, it's it's having a lot of conversations and I, I may do things a little bit different than other consultants is I want to know you as a 
person first. And then I, as I know you as a person, I see how certain things interact in the business or why various decisions are made, why there may be short tempers around something or why there's a lot of joy in, in something else. And that kind of all comes into who we are as an individual. Yeah, it was interesting. The other day we were interviewing um, Dr. Christina Serrano from CSU, Colorado State University here in Colorado, where both Christy and I are located in the United States. And she said something interesting that I wanted your feedback on, um, because you do work with a lot of more individuals than many of our other bigger projects, right? They're working with maybe a project sponsor, but then an entire um, manufacturing team or an entire HR team, those types of things. And she said something um, interesting that you as an individual have to be motivated to make that change in processes, technology, systems, those types of things in order for it to be successful. And that was something I hadn't really heard before is the importance of that individuality motivation. And I wondered if that's something that you experienced a lot in kind of our small business culture. Yeah, I would see that a lot of if you don't want it enough, it's not going to happen. And you have to have the motivation behind it. And I've seen projects where they decide halfway through, this just seems hard or this seems unattainable. And it's talking through and it's all a mind game. We have our own version of mind games that we play on a daily basis, whether it's irrational fear or not believing you can do something, all of that. And it holds you back from getting to where you need to go. And that and that shows up in businesses, too, of ERP selections or, or various technology changes because they are big things. And at the end of the day, people do not like change. There's a few people that get a thrill from it, but mm-hmm. most people are like, I'm, I'm good at doing what I want to do. I got this spreadsheet. It works. Why would I want to change this? Because I feel, and we've talked about this in various other podcasts mm-hmm. too, of people owning what they do and they don't want it being taken away from them, even though it will not be taken away from them. It just gets transferred somewhere else into the realm of what their job title is. And how do you help businesses communicate that? Say you are, you know, working with a new, even, I mean, for small businesses, we're not looking at a ton of emerging technologies like AI, predictive analytics, but even moving from QuickBooks to NetSuite is, you know, a huge change a lot of times with just the different automations that a lot of times they'll experience. So how do you still communicate that, hey, you do have a ton of value here. It's just a different role that you'll be playing. And these are your different responsibilities. It's giving real examples from other projects I've been on and then also taking them through of here's what you do today. Here's what it's going to look like on this new system. How how are you feeling about it? And it goes back to being more of that psychologist role for them. How how are you feeling about this? Are you upset about it? Are Are you happy about this? Does it take something off your plate that you wish could have been let go months ago? What all, all of that. And I think that begins to help. And especially when they can understand how much what they're doing today is really, really painful. They're like, oh, yep, I, I understand more why this needs to go away. Or even you, you draw out the process on the board and you have all of a sudden with this new system, like, hey, we got 10 processes. Now we're going to go down to five because all of these are going to go away. And you see people be like, yeah, that's awesome because I don't like to do any of these and start showing them that their skill set is still very valuable to get the the end product done. Yeah, and I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, I'm curious, and Prisa just um, shared on LinkedIn 
uh, one of your YouTube videos about how you've outgrown QuickBooks. Um, so I'm curious when it comes to specific systems, are some better than others for small businesses or um, more startup type businesses? Um, and which ones yeah. would those um, be, or maybe what considerations should these small business clients look for? I think it depends what you're doing. Um, QuickBooks, you're always going to outgrow eventually, especially if you're an inventory-based company, because QuickBooks doesn't handle inventory. There's a few get-by softwares that you can plug into QuickBooks, like uh, Fishbowl and things like that. And we talked about it in that podcast that mm -hmm. she posted on there. Of It'll buy you some time until monetarily you're ready to invest in a larger system to, to fully integrate. Um, but I think overall, most ERP softwares will work for anybody. It's just going to be based off the look. Some of it comes down to look and feel. What do you feel more comfortable navigating through cost? And is this going to be able to grow with you, this software? Or is this just another patch to get you to where you need to go? And we try to look at softwares of you having for 15 to 20 years and not having to go through the process again anytime soon. And are there any systems that are just like a no-go for small businesses? I'm just thinking about like, you know, smaller businesses that might be kind of in that, that 50 million sweet spot. It sounds to me, and I, I definitely am not um, the expert you are, but something like an SAPS for HANA could be a yeah, little bit no. overwhelming. Yeah. Some of those tier one softwares, no, you wouldn't need those. SAP S4 HANA is a really good one. That's for an extremely large company. I mean, you're probably close to sitting to a billion dollars for a lot of them or on the high end, you know, over a half a million easy. Um, you also don't want software that um, requires you to make a lot of changes to it. So a really highly customized system like Odoo, that's harder for a smaller business because it's a lot of back end work. There's a lot of customization. You need somebody to be able to put it together, to pull it apart, to be able to get to what you need. And that just doesn't make sense because it's a lot of costs for you to incur that you don't need. Where you would go something like a NetSuite or an Infor, those are ones that they have lower tiered softwares that make more sense and they're taking care of all of it for you. And when it comes to the finance piece, because I know that's one of your specialties like we talked about, I can assume it can be very risky for um, a small business to purchase or invest in something um, like a new system. So how do you kind of help them work through, you know, is this the best business decision? And to understand all of the costs. Yeah, so that, what I always say is, I like to do an analysis with them. How much are you currently spending today on all of your software? And then how much is the new software going to cost? And so let's say we currently spend a million dollars on our old software. It's going to cost us $2 million for new software. $2 million seems like a lot, but really it's only a delta of a million because I'm adding on and I'm going to retire out most of this old software. So looking at things that way, also looking at what do I really need today versus what I want of uh, some other add-ons that people think of is like a quality module an R&D, HR. Those are all things I don't necessarily need when I first implement my ERP. They could be phase two, phase three, when you your ROI on your software is already starting to come in. 
and then you can expand and take those on. So looking at what do I really need today versus uh, what I think I need and scaling back from there. That's a good way to not overbuy. And then um, I would say looking at implementation, how ready are, are your employees and, and they can participate in the implementation so you're not spending more and more time because if the vendor says, hey, this is an eight month implementation and ends up taking you 12, those extra four months get really expensive. And if everybody can stay on par and keep up with what's going on, that makes it easy. So when it comes to looking at costs of, of these projects, is it ever, is budget ever a, a consideration in between, in be, between <laughs> picking a best of breed system or a full ERP suite? Um, do you often see that they might start with best of breed, maybe start with a supply chain management system or something like that instead of a full ERP system? Or how do you decide what is best for the organization and looking at those two options? Yeah, I've seen some people come in and they'll start with a PLM first and then they'll go to a full ERP or they want to start with the ERP, but just the finance component of it. And they're like, if especially if it's multi-location or multi-companies that roll up into consolidated, they're like, hey, it makes the most sense. Let's get everybody on the same financial piece. And, and then three months later, four months later, we'll add in um, another component of it. And maybe they piecemeal the ERP together until it's, it's all done. And that's one way to do it, to, to spread out costs. And there's also ways that you can talk with your tax consultant because there's certain parts of ERP that can be capitalized versus expensed. And you can look at it from that way and kind of strategize around it. And what if um, a small business uh, is, is lacking in their overall IT capabilities? How do you come in and say, hey, you know, just so you know, you know, software needs maintenance, it needs these these types of things without kind of having the vendor swoop in and say, oh, no, you know, this is all, you know, automated and, and those types of things. How do you just make sure they understand that resourcing cost as well? Yeah, we usually talk about that right up front before we ever start the project. And most vendors do have support plans. So if you're a smaller business, you don't have an IT department or you don't even have one dedicated person, there, there is support that you can purchase and you can keep that. And then when it makes sense, you bring somebody on. Um, those, those are ways around it, but it's always good to talk about it at the very beginning when we do start one of these projects because some companies are like, yeah, we've been wanting to hire an IT person, but we didn't know when we should do it. And putting into, hey, we're going to be working on the selection process. And maybe at week eight, um, we start bringing somebody in and then they get on board. So they're going to work through the implementation and be fully trained on the client side to help run the project and run the back end of it. So if somebody needs a new user license, they can log in and get it all done and get them set up uh, properly. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense and just needing to understand what that looks like. How um, can you explain kind of the dynamic between uh, a technology independent and agnostic consultant and a software vendor? I think a lot of times another misperception is, you know, we hate software vendors or something like that. We, we actually work very closely with them. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times people just don't understand 
that um, we're there for the business as opposed to the vendor and just kind of speak that language, which I assume would be yeah. really valuable in a small business dynamic. So depending on the type of project, there may be us and then just the vendor, or you would have um, a partner come in and the partner would be the person that would implement the software. So a good example is I purchased software A. Software A sells me the licenses. They give me a partner that does the full implementation for the client. And I would stick around throughout the whole selection, guiding the process, making sure they get the best price, making sure they're, they're getting exactly what they need, and then staying on through the implementation to QA, QC, and PM, various things, and to make sure that what we agreed upon when the contract was signed that everybody's holding to those measures and helping the clients um, by filling in gaps. So when it's a small organization, sometimes they can't go to all of the meetings. So then I become the person that stands in that gap Mm -hmm. and I'm at all of the meetings and then help direct them of where they need to go. And even some, I've I've been so involved that I'm doing data migration with them. I'm helping them hire new employees all that it's really fun and so every everybody it's a variety every client and didn't you like sit on the interview board for one of your clients for like their CEO or something like that yeah yeah we were we were shopping for a CFO and going through um various resumes and then I would interview them first and then they would interview them that's excellent I mean I think that relationship is just so valuable and powerful especially in Um, like we talked about kind of this vulnerable space in being a small business owner, understanding that you need to grow um, your system's footprint in order to grow your business, but having no idea where to start. So speaking of that, what would be um, your piece of advice for a small business consultant or a small business owner? Um, What would be the first step in, in considering a digital transformation? I think it's, understanding where your business is today, what are all the pain points, the bottlenecks that are keeping you from getting to the end goal that you, that you want to be at. And then the accountant in me is I always work backwards. So if I know where I want to be, then I work back from words from there to find what's going to be the best solution path to get to, to the end product. And I know most people don't work that way, but for I, I think accounting you always do because you look at the bottom and you work backwards to find your errors. And I do the same thing in a, in a business way. So if you can identify that, of let's say you're a $50 million company and your goal in five years to be a $75 million company, how are we going to get there? And then work backwards from there and saying, yep, the only way to get there is I need to put a different piece of technology in. I need to be able to hire a person to do this and this, and then kind of put a plan of prioritizing what those needs are. That's definitely, you know, a great first step. Um, and then, you know, I'll add from my sales and marketing side, you know, reaching out to an expert. It's, it would just be the same as if you were building a new manufacturing plant, you'd need a contractor, those types of things. Is people just Yeah, because otherwise you can make um, poor choices, the wrong mm-hmm. word, but it, it can go down the, uh, the wrong path. And when you hire somebody like us to come in, we can we can make sure that the vendor is giving you exactly what you need. You're not being upsold things you don't mm-hmm. want, or you're not aware of certain things that may need to be included. And then now you've purchased a software that's not the best fit for you. Yeah. And, and our friend Marcus Harris over at Toff Law always talks about, you know, investing in someone and in his world to take a look at your contracts is going to be much cheaper 
um, to make sure that it's done correctly at the, the beginning, then bringing someone in, which we often come into organizations that have a failed implementation, a stalled implementation. And then we also act here, um, and Chrissy's, I think, been on a few of these teams of expert witnesses. So basically, if they're if they've gone to litigation and there is a lawsuit, a lot of times they'll hire one of our experts to come in and say, yes, this was done poorly. Yes, this should have been this way. But hopefully it never comes to that, right? Because you were able to get that insight in the forefront of the project as opposed to trying to clean it up. Yeah. And just for all you small business owners out there too, the agreements that the vendors give you, they can always be redlined. They can always be redlined and different verbiage can be added to help you. And that's the thing of having either a good law um, or legal team that's internal at your uh, working outside with one or using one of our resources to to help get that all planned. Yeah, definitely. And and we when this live stream is over, if anyone is um, watching it afterwards, we'll go ahead and tag Marcus. Um, he also spoke at our our Digital Stratosphere 2022 event that we recently had in February that Christy spoke at with one of our other colleagues, Amanda, about small and mid market businesses. So definitely. Um, check that out as well. You can go to stratosphere2022.com and register. It's still free. You can watch all the recordings, but both Marcus and Christy um, speak at that um, that conference. So definitely something to check out. So to close, Christy, I'd just love for you to kind of speak to anyone that is considering a career in consulting and give kind of your number one or top pieces of advice in um, seeing if this career field is right for you. Yeah, I think do it. It's it's really rewarding. It's a lot of fun. It really fits a lot of personalities, I think, of people that they don't want to be in that nine to five. They they want a little bit more freedom. They want the ability to work with more diverse clients. And this allows for that. And then I always say ask lots of questions. You're, you know, reach out to people that are in that field, talk to them what their experience is like. Um and then just start, you know, working in it and see how you like it. And yeah, I, I think that's the best way. I always say, just jump in, see, see what happens. Are you, yeah. are you able, or what do I always tell people? I'm like, just jump on the mountain, jump off the mountain and build your wings on the way down. You'll figure it out. And I think that's kind of how I did with consulting. Excellent. Well, I think um, we're so grateful for all of your insight and just for our audience watching. If you are interested in joining the third stage global team, we do have um, offices in North America, in South Africa, in Europe and Australia, which is our Asia Pacific market. But we do have global consultants that we work with all around the world that are Christie's peers and um, our colleagues that really do have specialties, whether it's a specific um, type of business size like Christy or a, a vertical and an expertise in um, accounting and finance, or if it's a supply chain management, or it's even a, a cultural immersion, um, we, we absolutely can accommodate those types of clients. And if you're interested in joining that team, we have our careers page on our website, and then we also have work at thirdstageconsulting.com. We don't have a formal application process, just as you can probably see from this interview, we really hire for a cultural fit that is gonna maximize business value for our clients. Um, so we really do handpick each, each person that is um, an applicant, but we hope to hear from you. And Chrissy, we're so grateful for your time today. And then thank you to 
Alicia Parisa as well, who's been kind of behind the scenes, helping us to um, give some supporting homework content, as I always call it. So thank you so much. We do live streams every Friday. If you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can set a reminder um, and you can meet a new uh, team member each week. So thanks again, Christy, for your time. And, um, we will see you next time. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks, Kyler and Christy. Great conversation. Look forward to unpacking that a bit more and hitting on some of the key themes of that discussion. We'll do that when we come back with a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 66. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find us on all the audio podcast platforms. Whatever platform you like to listen to podcasts on, you can find us there. Subscribe, leave us a comment, review. Any feedback you have is much appreciated, and we do read all of those and keep keep a pulse on your feedback, so we appreciate that. Um, so this interview that you did with, with Christy, what were some of your takeaways after filming that and having had some additional time to digest that, Kyler? Yeah, so I have a question because Christy talks a lot about her finance background. Um, that's one thing that she's very, very strong in, and that's what she went to school for. And after some of your other consultant hot seats that we've done uh, for transformation ground control, it seems though that's a kind of a common starting point for consultants is having that finance background. Khalid mentioned that that was something he started in and until he met you, he hadn't really <laughs> figured that he was going to go into um, digital transformation consulting. So is that a, kind of something that you typically see or a natural evolution? It can be. Yeah, it is a, a very common one, finance and accounting, but also um, any sort of manufacturing and or supply chain background it, that tends, tends to help as well. Um, really, it's just you know, any sort of operational real world experience. I mean, I think that's the key thing is just understanding how businesses work. Certainly finance and accounting is a core fundamental foundational part of any business as is supply chain management. So, you know, it, it just depends on the industry we're dealing with, but that is a very common one for sure. Interesting. And, and my other question as someone who's hired countless consultants is I went back and forth with this. Obviously, Christy is incredibly talented and she's, you know, really a unicorn that fits right into that small business space. But she's also, you know, a, a third generation entrepreneur. And I thought about this for a while and I'm like, I feel like entrepreneurs would be very hard to hire and manage in a, a technology implementation or project space because you have to be so focused 
you know, understanding the business as a whole, but you can't really fall down these rabbit holes of we should do this, we should do this, we should do this. Like a lot of times entrepreneurs just have that full intensive creativity. Um, so I wanted to get your take on that. Are entrepreneurs good consultants or can they be a challenge in ways? Hmm. I feel like, I feel like it's a crap. No answer I give is going to be a good one here. It's sort of yeah. like when my sort of like when my wife asked if yeah. something looks good on her or, or if she looks fat. You know, I just feel like I don't really know that there's a good answer to that question. <laughs> but uh, no, but all seriousness or all kidding aside, um, I do think in general, I'd say, yes, entrepreneurs are a bit more difficult or can be a bit more difficult to manage as consultants, especially at, at larger organizations. Yeah. Um, for us at third stage, you know, we've got 50 people roughly. And so we're smaller than a lot of consulting firms. Um, so we kind of, we value entre entrepreneurial spirit, but we also value structure and repeatable mm -hmm. processes and all that stuff. Um, certainly at the big companies, you know, the really big companies, I, I would imagine it becomes even more of a, a pain point or more of a, a challenge to, to transition from being an entrepreneurial type person to super structured and super rigid in, in your processes or whatever. So um, yeah, I agree with you. I guess the one thing I would agree with you on in general is that she is sort of a, a purple unicorn. Would you oh, call absolutely. it purple unicorn? unicorn, purple unicorn, unicorn. Just regular. She can be purple if she wants to, but that yeah. doesn't really seem like Christy's color to me. I would go more like yeah. a, a black or red. Yeah, unicorn. I was thinking red. Yeah. Yeah, red unicorn. Yeah, either one, black and red. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah, she she's one of the few or it's a pretty rare uh, skill set that she has. But, you know, I, I think um, I don't remember if she said this in the discussion or not, but she she has a heavy preference to consult to small businesses yeah. versus really big ones. So that, I mean, that's pretty. So that kind of plays to her strength to, you know, she does a lot of our small and mid market consulting. And we have others that will do the the larger types of projects, not because she can't do it, but she just likes the probably from her upbringing and just she's been around entrepreneurial mm -hmm. organizations her entire life literally from back when she was a kid. So, you know, I, I think that makes sense for her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and she talked about um, some of that background and we, we kind of joked about her overall process because we kind of dug into why do you like to be a consultant? Christy mentioned that she likes kind of the flexibility. She likes to work how she likes to work. Obviously, she meets um, deliverables on time and works with, with clients very closely. Um, but we joked about when I had my second baby, I was up in the middle of the night with the baby and um, I had, she had messaged me about something on our team's chat and I had messaged her back and she was like, what are you doing awake? Cause usually she's the only one up at like one in the morning um, and that type of, of overall structure. So she talked about just that, that ability to be a bit more working on, on her, in her lane um, as well is something that she really enjoys about consulting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's funny. Cause I used to be the night owl of the, of the company, but as I've gotten older, I'm no longer the, <laughs> the night owl. Yeah. Um, and then I think for Christy, if you haven't checked out Christy's content, um, on our YouTube channel, you should definitely head over and check it out. The thing that is most interesting to me about her ability to just go into a situation that a lot of times can be kind of awkward when it comes to a small, tight-knit business community. Um, she gave some examples of a full family-owned business, uh, multi-generational, where she might be called in 
by the main decision maker, but the second decision maker isn't really sure about like her there, you know, consulting about this new technology, or it might be quite the opposite. The second generation of a family owned business that might be younger, more tech savvy, um, you know, challenges the manual processes that businesses have in place. So she can be in a very vulnerable situation for not only family owned business, but small business owners that really eat, sleep and breathe their business. Um, and she has to kind of win over their trust, which is something that, you know, can be a, a huge challenge, I must imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, winning. I mean, I, that's what a big part of consulting is, is, yeah. is building that trust. And you can be a really good consultant and know, you know, be the smartest person in the room and know more than anyone. But if you, if the client doesn't trust you, then yeah, that's, a, that's certainly a big challenge for sure. Yeah, and she has such amazingly deep relationships with her clients um, mm -hmm. on the level that she sat on CEO interview boards um, for some of her clients. She sees them every time they're in market. Those types of, of bigger relationships, I think, is something that, that she takes very seriously. And we see that in the metrics. Many of her clients, which have a low budget right, for, for new technology that have to be very careful because they are at risk. A lot of times if a small business botches an implementation that could risk, you know, closing down the business um, type of thing. And so a lot of times they'll call us back after they've finished a selection project and continue to need Christy to come in and project manage their implementation simply because they're not matching the language of their other support um, vendors, SIs, those types of things. So I think that's just a huge asset. And we talk a lot about, in our conversations about just having that insurance as a small business for your investment in a, a huge new technology process, not only from the technical side, but also the change management side can be a huge um, pain point for small businesses. Yeah. And just knowing how to, how to right size some of these consulting solutions for small businesses is a challenge. And I think a lot of consulting firms struggle with that because what works for a larger mid-sized company or, or an, a larger enterprise you know, a smaller organization oftentimes isn't able to afford that sort of thing and or uh, unable to um, just consume and digest those those offerings. So she, she has a really good way of sort of taking our methodologies, our tool sets and approach and scaling it down to what small business priorities and needs are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she mentioned some of her tactics of just kind of building that trust on those recommendations. Um, is utilizing her team to create that authenticity. So maybe they're they're not so sure about her, but bringing in some of her peers that might be a specialist in the industry or a director that has you know a boatloads of experience, those types of things. And I I love that approach because it it really is client focused and there's no ego involved in that conversation. It's just about what's best from a team approach for the client. Yeah. Yep. I agree for sure. Yeah. And so Christy, if you want to follow up on some of her content, like I said, she is on our YouTube channel. She actually has her own small business playlist. So if you are looking to switch from something like QuickBooks to uh, ERP suite or something else um, in those areas, she has a lot of quick software selections when it comes to, are you ready to move on from QuickBooks and talk about those smaller small businesses transition pieces? Um, she also just did uh, a really interesting keynote uh, on small business consulting at our 2022 Digital Stratosphere with one of our 
other um, consultants, um, Amanda Patterson, who did mid-market in those conversations. So it was a really interesting kind of dichotomy between those two and understanding what that means as far as technology implementation and growth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So be sure to check that out on couple different sources there on, on the YouTube channel playlist, as well as the, the Stratosphere event at stratosphere2022.com. Um, well, good. Well, thanks for that that debrief. And those are some good follow-up items. And thanks to Christy for being on the show as well and sharing some of her small and mid-market uh, insights as it relates to digital transformation and consulting. So that sums it up for today. We've covered a lot of ground here and uh, we'll, we'll pick up the conversation next Wednesday with our next episode. Uh, which you can find on all the audio podcast platforms as well as LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. So be sure to check us out there. And in the meantime, hope you all have a great week. Thank you, Kyler, and all the guests we had on the show today. And uh, we will see you next time on Transformation Ground Control.